the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. I've been waiting to do this episode for a few months because I was sworn to secrecy. Since CooperCon, I've also had a ton of requests to cover this. Well, here it is. A new and very exciting suspect was revealed at CooperCon, and if, like me, you weren't able to attend this year, you're in luck. Two of the three people that presented their information were more than willing to do it all again just for you. You may want to see some of the pictures we reference in this one, so if you want to do that for yourself, you can go to norjak.org, and norjak is spelled N-O-R-J-A-K.org. Enough intro. Welcome back to the show, my good friends, Nikki Broughton and Ryan Burns. All right, well, let's start with sort of the big news in the vortex. I know this isn't your guys' thing, so we'll start off by promoting somebody else's work. But Dan Greider just released part two of his Richard McCoy documentary. I believe part two is called uh, Deep FBI Secrets. Did you guys see it? Yes. Yeah. I, t- I took a peek, you know, we're, we're in the vortex. It, it popped up and, you know, we, we got to see, uh, we got to see what Grider had up sleeve for round two. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think, uh, I don't, I don't think it was much better than what he had in round one, but I think round one was actually a little bit better uh, put together as far as what, what he had, as far as the whole scoop of the case. Yeah. I appreciated round one had a lot of the family stuff. I, I enjoyed seeing his children. That was cool. You know, I mean, in fact, his son looks a lot like him, too. You know, if I had seen I'm surprised nobody noticed at CooperCon last year when the children were there. I Man, if, if, oh. if I saw that guy in V23, I'd go, that guy kind of looks like Richard McCoy. I mean, they, they look similar. You know, they have the, the ears that, that you can't miss, you know, but that their faces look similar, too. He looks like I think he's I think he's I think he's Richard McCoy. The third. Is that right? Mm-hmm. The, the son. Yeah, that's right. Because Richard. McCoy was McCoy Jr. So yeah, he's the third. So, but yeah, no, it was, it was, I mean, there were some elements to it. I mean, obviously, you know, the documentary is two, two components, right? It's the first part is, is him finding this parachute. And then the second part is him claiming that Nick O'Hara executed McCoy essentially, um, which I don't buy that at all. But um, yeah, the issue with the parachute though, is that, you know, I mean, that, that was debunked in like half an hour. I mean, the parachute, you know, his entire thing is debunked in like half an hour. I mean, Meltzer, uh, Mark Meltzer texted me. He goes, those are D-rings on that parachute. I was like, yeah, I know. And we all know that Cooper had no D-rings and this parachute has D-rings. I mean, it's, it's not Cooper's chute, period. It's a very bold claim to make. And I found that part of the video kind of weird, like... I hate to say that it seemed staged, but that was the sort of impression that I got from it. And 
it's not the right shoe. Even no. myself looking at it, I was like, that doesn't look like the other NBA parachutes that I've seen. Mm-mm. And then I immediately get on the drop zone and it's like, there's two people that are, uh, this is why exactly what the shoot is. And this is exactly what it isn't. And it's yeah, obviously it's not an M- Cooper's. It's an MB12 or something. Yeah. It's like, it's a later model parachute. And then the whole thing too, is that see Grider is taking from what Bruce, you know, Grider is taking what Cassie told Bruce in the book about how it was some custom rigged thing, which is ludicrous because we have, we we have descriptions of those parachutes from that night, you know. I mean, we have got Norman Hayden in the 302s now, saying, and he, and you know, these are things that Bruce didn't have access to when he wrote that book, you know. But we do now, and we've got Norman Hayden saying exactly what they are. And the thing is, Cosi made those parachutes for Norman Hayden for emergencies if his plane got you know taken out or something, right? And so we had to bail out. And why would he make a custom parachute? Where the ripcord is hidden and all these other things for a customer. I mean, the, I mean, Hayden bought those from Cosi for use for himself or for his passenger in his plane. There, it's not going to be some custom rig, you know, that he gave. I mean, I mean, it's just it's ludicrous, you know. I mean, that's not how it was. I mean, I mean, and again, what's funny is that is that we know that um, like, uh, there's a thing called a cape well, which makes it to where you can cut where you can cut away a parachute easily. Um, and Grider is like, this, this shoot has Cape wells on it. Well, we've got, I, I, within an hour, I found a 302 where Kasi is shown a parachute in 1973. And he's like, uh, this has Cape wells on it. The shoot that I gave Hayden, you know, didn't have Cape wells on it. So it's like right there, right there. We have Kasi's own words from 73 saying that there were no, there were no Cape wells on these parachutes. Yeah. So, and we don't, we don't mess around. Like we, like like Ryan, he he has all the FBI 302s in a searchable searchable database. So that's 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 one thing that's kind of uh like within the last year, everyone's kind of like smartened up. Like we got all these 302s, let's put them in a searchable database so we can just type something in of interest and then we can pop something up. So that, that's kind of the game. Uh, that's kind of what Ryan's been doing. Something of interest he, um that's like going on he'll just throw it in the in the search and then boom if there's anything going on with it he'll be able to identify it and and, and kind of see what's going on yeah the the, yeah, the cape wells yeah i just typed in cape wells and then i see Cassie saying oh this sh-, you know the shoot had no cape wells i'm like well grider saying this shoot has cape wells look at it right here and it's just wrong and then the other part you know the thing about o'hara killing mccoy like you know grider seems to make the claim that you know, a shotgun blast to the chest at point blank range isn't fatal. And like that they let him bleed out over 45 minutes or something, or that they, you know, killed him somehow, which is just, you know, like O'Hara comes off as a little skeezy a little bit. I mean, with the mark on the shotgun, that wasn't a good look. That was not a good look. No, he put it. Yeah. For those who don't know, he had, you know, he actually, and that was wrong. I mean, uh, basically, for those who don't haven't seen it, you know, McCoy was killed by an FBI agent who was carrying a personal weapon, which isn't done really. I mean, he had a personal use shotgun in his car, and that's what he shot McCoy with. You know, when you're a police officer or law enforcement and you kill someone, I mean, it needs to be with a service weapon that you're issued. Um, but yeah, he kept this thing and put a notch in it, like, you know, uh, you know, and. Then he and he laments that the other person he tried to kill with a shotgun he missed him. You know he's like, oh, later on I tried to kill somebody else basically and I missed him. 
So he seems to embellish. He likes the fact that he killed Richard McCoy. Um, but, you know, that's kind of the FBI maybe for you. They, you know, it's. Well, in that time period, certainly. Yeah. I, I mean, I think Dan Greider, like, like the best thing he did was like that. He pretty much illustrated that the FBI pretty much murdered uh, Richard Floyd McCoy. If it, that's the truth that he got to, like it, he did get to some truth. And I think that's, you know, I think that's kind of the crux that what he got to was that maybe Richard Floyd McCoy was actually executed by the FBI. Um, and that's, I think, the, the closest to any kind of truth he got to with that documentary. But there was just so much left out, like McCoy shot at a helicopter. And then yep. I've read many shot reports, at them first. Yeah, he that when he first. got to his house, he shot at mm-hmm. them. So yep. if it's a shootout situation, that's a lot different than he walked in his front door and was just blasted. It wasn't a firing squad. I mean, that's what O'Hara even says. He's like, well, he, he's like, well, he shot at us, you know, he shot and then we shot. You know, and we all shot at the same time. Basically, we all responded to him shooting at us. You know, I mean, like, yeah. And so I don't buy that. It's I, I did. I did. The only thing as a lawyer, I would say the only the thing that really did strike me is when it is weird. And I remember when I read uh, the real McCoy, uh, the book that Walker. Yeah. Melvin Walker, who was his accomplice for his escape. He and McCoy robbed banks and things after they got out of prison. You know, they did a lot of shenanigans. You know, Melvin Walker was uh, Melvin Walker was on the FBI's top ten when they were on the run. Not McCoy. Melvin Walker was, and Melvin Walker is caught after all this. They, I mean, they kidnapped a person in their car. They had hostage. I mean, they did all these shenanigans after they got after they escaped prison. McCoy and Walker did, and Walker only gets seven years for that, for all of this, for escape from a federal penitentiary, for kidnapping, for bank robberies on the run. He gets seven years, and you know Greider makes the claim that basically that Walker was tired of being on the run, and that he is the one who set you know McCoy up and said, "Hey, look, you know, I'll give you McCoy, but I want a deal." And that makes sense to me as an attorney because that's the only way you get you know a you know you know low time like that is to work out a deal. That's the only way. So yeah. that makes sense to me that Greider. I said I think that there was definitely truth in the, in the fact that his accomplice got off way easy i'd agree with that but i want to make one more point about the parachute if i'm investigating a suspect my own suspect i'm like you know i believe it's jesse lee he's db cooper for sure and i'm going through his stuff and i find a parachute my first move isn't to broadcast my parachute find Mm -hmm. my first move is going to be i have to verify this yeah, I have to talk to as many people, make sure it's the exact right one, prove that it's his parachute before well, I go forward with the public announcement where people are going to be very critical of it. No, uh, Yeah, it, it lasted. Yeah, it lasted about 30 minutes. I mean, yeah, we, maybe less. It was it was already shot down. The vortex and, was already ri- ready to rip that thing in shreds. And that's what happened. Yeah, I mean, you got I mean, <laughs> especially with something as physically like you know the parachute is something you you know it, it's demonstrable like it, it's not a theory it's a thing so when you have an actual physical object that can be looked at the scrutiny on that is going to you know be pretty intense and so when you have a physical object that you hold in front of a camera people can say oh that's wrong or that's wrong i mean like like i said i you know mark Meltzer, you know a thousand scott you know he's been skydiving for 50 years he, he took took him 10 seconds to go that thing has d-rings on it 
not, not it's not Cooper's shoot. So, you know, I would I would never put something out there that could be so easily debunked. You know, that seems so. You know, I, I just doesn't seem it doesn't seem intelligent to me to do that. But and the thing is, he had time. I mean, I mean, he this wasn't broadcast live. This was not the Geraldo Rivera, you know, Al Capone tomb thing. It wasn't like he was like broadcasting it live and he'll here's the shoot. I mean, he actually went home and filmed. He he had that filmed. He went home and edited that. So it wasn't. This was a process. So it wasn't like it was a live moment, you know. So I don't understand why you would do that. Well, I guess if you know Den Grider a little bit more, you would. But um, but yeah, man, he didn't know due diligence. I mean, <laughs> you know, if if he uh, if he got any advisement on the shoot that he found, you know, if he was really trying to uh, do an investigation, you know, he wouldn't even presented this because it's absolutely a joke. Um, <laughs> we know what the shoot was, and that's it has no resemblance to what Dan Grider found in that crate and and whatever whatever circumstances how that went down. It just, it looks it looks staged to me from my naked eye, and you know I'm just it's just more more Dan Grider uh more Dan Grider showmanship as far as uh, as far as I go. It's a good way to put it. He yeah. has such a big following too, and. It's it's frustrating for me that I'll have people reach out and message me like, hey, obviously he solved it. I'm like, well, he omitted quite a bit that we know from McCoy. Mm -hmm. McCoy's one of the most longstanding suspects in this case. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was a suspect six months after the D.B. Cooper hijacking. So he's been a suspect for over 50 years and one of the most investigated people in this case, we know absolutely everything about him, but there was no talk about his lisp. There was no talk about a Southern accent. He wasn't like, oh yeah, he did have these ears that stuck out. And oh yeah, the age is wildly wrong. And oh yeah, he was in Las Vegas on the 24th and in Utah on the 25th. Well, and also a thing about McCoy that you have to realize too, is that, you know, this is something that kind of points toward that I've come to the realization about Cooper maybe not being a skydiver is that if you look at Cooper and then you add the five copycats of the five copycats, only two had ever jumped out of a plane before. Only two were skydivers and that's Rob Heady and McCoy. And both of the skydivers brought their own parachutes with them. And that is a critical um, thing to remember. And when you talk to skydivers, they all say, hell no, I wouldn't trust somebody else's parachute. You know, I would bring my own, which is what the skydivers did. So why did McCoy bring one six months later, but not bring his own the first time? Right. And, and he was already and his Dan Grider's actually established on his video. He was already he already had so many skydiving jumps already before even Norjack. So the fact that he wouldn't even brought on his rig the first time and then brought yeah. it on the second time. It just not, it it just speaks clearly to it's not the same person because anybody I, I live in Lake Elsinore, um, I you know I'm in sky uh, for for the weird vortex reason I got spit out into skydive country so I have a unique perspective on this because I've been able to talk to so many skydivers and we know through reading the FBI files the FBI looked extensively into skydivers that was the first thing they went into and if db cooper was a skydiver we would already had the link they would already found out the guy 
DB Cooper was not a skydiver. And I know that because any skydiver, anybody with the amount of jumps that McCoy had already prior to Norjack would have already wanted to bring their own rig because the, you're already getting into gear. That's all part of the training, into the gear, into the stuff, and everything. You, you're already getting trained from a skydiver's mentality, right? The brain of a skydiver would have brought your own rig because you could have just brought it on and no problem. Again, nothing was searched in 1971. You could have brought whatever you wanted to at that time. Yeah, right? McCoy There's... walked on with a handgun, a fake grenade, and his own parachute. Exactly. So why is he afraid of bringing a parachute on the first time? That doesn't make any sense. Anyone with any skydiving experience would have brought their own equipment, would have brought their own chute, and would have not referred to the stuff as front chute, back chute. They would have said main, reserves. They would have used some kind of skydiving lingo. So the fact that it wasn't referred to as main and reserves. It was referred to as front and back shoots. And he didn't care what he got. Um, as long as he got a good work and shoot, that was good enough for him. So that, that just shows you that someone that just knows that how a parachute's supposed to work and what it does. And if I get a good work and shoot, that's all I really need. And that kind of points to somebody that wasn't in the skydiving community because the FBI looked at it thoroughly that was the first thing they did and they came up with nothing and believe me i'm on the skydiving forums and i've heard every skydiver that every anybody thought that could have been db cooper and i looked into him and it's been a nothing been a dead end so i can safely say that db cooper was not a skydiver and most likely not even um a jumper in the military at all either they would yeah. still would have been more um there would have still been more about their gear. Like I'm sure Ryan can talk about like Ted B. Braden, who, who was a military jumper, but then he kind of went skydiving and, and all that stuff. Those guys are just all about their gear because that's what they're trained to do. Yep. And so, yeah, that, so the, yeah, the skydivers were, the skydiving community was looked into thoroughly. And we also have to assume that the commando ranks were looked into. That's nothing too. Is so we, I mean, the FBI has the resources to look into other government employees, which are soldiers. Okay. So you can damn well guarantee that every Mac V SOG who ever lived was probably looked at. Okay. Cause this sounds like a, people would say this sounds like some kind of Mac V SOG operation. And that's probably, and it seems like it would be like that. Um, but you have to assume that, I mean, there's only a limited number of these guys in the, you know, in the world who are Mac V SOG commandos. And, uh, you know, those and, you know, the government had access to to their military records to find out who these guys were. So it wasn't hard. The issue is that we'll never know, I don't think, because uh, classified information does not end up in 302s. Um, so there will never be a 302 where they discuss Mac v. Sog. You know, we're not going to see that. So that's, uh, you know, that's going to be. Um, something with something something that we have to work around, but we can assume though that Mac V Sog guys and commandos were investigated just as highly as the skydivers. So yeah, it, but yeah, going back to every going back to McCoy though, it wasn't McCoy. I mean, his photograph was shown to all ten eyewitnesses days after his arrest, and they played audio, audio recordings. Tapes, yeah, yeah, and so and they all said no, and it's just 
I, I, yeah, you're literally, it's as, it's as old hack as you can be to make McCoy Cooper. Because he is literally the oldest suspect we have. <laughs> yeah. It was the first and most obvious thing. The first and most obvious thing. Yep. I saw, I think it's from Drew Beeson, but it was a an old newspaper article from the Salt Lake Tribune where they were interviewing the guy who ratted out McCoy. Mm-hmm. And he says in that article, yeah, we were talking about, I'm paraphrasing this, obviously. We were talking about the D.B. Cooper skyjacking and he was like, yeah, I could do it even better just a few weeks after that. Which, yeah. I mean, you can't really prove that now at this point. It's not definitive evidence. But it to me, that really says, obviously, McCoy's not Cooper. He's talking with no. his buddy about how, oh, I could do that too, but I'd do it better. Well, 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 consider this. well, consider this, that, you know, um, I learned a lot by reading The Real, by reading the Real McCoy, uh, which for everybody who wants to read it, it's on, you know, only about 400 copies were sold before the, published, before the publishing house was sued by the family. And it was removed. So they're, they're rare books to find. Um, but th- it is on archive.org to read for anybody for free. Um, I would advise everyone to read that. Richard McCoy was writing a research paper on skyjackings. That's how he became obsessed with like Cooper and things. He was, he was getting his criminal justice degree at BYU and was writing a, literally writing a research paper on skyjacking, on how to prevent skyjacking. And he came to the conclusion that you can't. So he goes, oh, well, if I can't figure out a way to prevent it in my own research paper, then I should maybe do it myself. Um, and that's where it came from. So McCoy literally studied Cooper when people say, oh, well, how did he know about Cooper? He must have been Cooper. Well, no, he actually literally studied Cooper. He wrote a research paper on the man. So is Cooper going to write a research paper on himself? It's, it's, it's stupid. Um, to Boy, even... I would love to read that paper. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was ever finished or not. And um, – Something else, too, that's in the book, too, that's interesting is it was actually people – the guy who turned Cooper in likes to make a point that he's the one who came up with the idea, oh, it must be McCoy. But in the book, it's actually his uh, McCoy's sister-in-law. So McCoy had a sister-in-law. Um, I forget her name, but it was, you know, it was his wife's sister, and she was like 20 years old, and she was living with the family at the time, and McCoy hated her presence in the house. He was like, when is she going to leave? Was that Denise? Denise, yeah, Denise. Yeah, so mm-hmm. she was aware of the skyjacking. And, you know, she was in on it. Well, she wasn't in on it, but she knew about it. And so when uh, McCoy's buddy, who was a police dispatcher, calls the house, he goes, hey, where's Richard? You know, tell him to turn the TV on. There's a skyjacking, and it's happening over Provo. You know, she blurts out, I think it was Richard. He's like, what did you say? She goes, I think it's Richard. He's not here. You know, <laughs> and he, it's like, he, so, so basically she's the one who ratted him out. And McCoy actually has some expletives he used to describe his sister-in-law to the police for, for her involvement in this. He's like, Oh, you know, uh, she was blankety blank, you know? Um, but, and he's this not, not, here's this nice Mormon skyjacker who's cussing out his sister-in-law, but she's the one who goes, I think he's not here. Maybe it was him who did it. Is and, uh, so, Denise is also the one who said the, the tie clip was his, right? Yes, she did. She is. And then if you watch Grider part one, she's the one who says that she was babysitting the McCoy kids the whole week of Thanksgiving. So yeah, she seems a bit wishy-washy to me. Right. But the FBI went, you know, they did their due diligence. I mean, they, they looked at the, they looked at the mileage on the car. They looked at what flights McCoy could have possibly gotten to make it work. 
I mean, there, and there was just nothing, you know, even d- despite, like, let's say the witness testimony is wrong. If McCoy could have pulled this off, they looked into the possibility of that and nothing seemed to be able to work um, logistically um, for that to even happen. So, you know, they wanted McCoy to be Cooper badly. I mean, well, they absolutely. really it was, wanted it was a it was like a slam dunk. You know, yeah. it, was a, it was a slam dunk shot. You think the FBI, you don't think the FBI wanted it to be McCoy? Believe me, they wanted it to be McCoy. It's the but, same It's the same issue that Rackstraw faces. Like, you know, Rackstraw was in FBI custody or federal custody for a while. I mean, if, it, and it, yes, they had their chance to pin it on Rackstraw. They, and if they could have, they would have. But that's he wasn't they, Cooper, so they couldn't. That's why they flew him back from Iran. They they wouldn't have done that if they didn't think he, he had some connection to D.B. Cooper. That's exactly why they did that, but they couldn't pin anything on him. So then Rackstraw got spit out, and then he got to be able to live his life uh, and turn his life around. Um, but, you know, you got Colbert that came and brought him back up again, regurgitated him, and then kind of made a life his living hell through the uh, the last couple of remaining years, which I think is a little bit fucked up. But, you know, it is what it is. It's it's the vortex. Yeah, I've said it on the show a ton of times. If if there was anything the FBI could have done to pin the skyjacking on McCoy or Rackstraw, they would have at least tried. Even if right. it was something real loosey-goosey, like a friend of a friend said it was him. Yeah. But there's and nothing FBI like does that. a good job. Like, once they get you in your crosshairs... They do a good job. They, you know, they shake you down. They they're able to find people that that know you, and they're able to kind of infiltrate your kind of world and kind of shake that up. And if anything would have popped up, I think the FBI would have gotten it, gotten it to to be in the case closed. It just to me, it just seems like the FBI just never had Cooper on their radar. Because I think if they did, they would have probably gotten him. All right. In other vortex news coopercon just wrapped up and unfortunately i was not able to make it this year but both of you did what can you tell us about coopercon well first of all big um fact that darren wasn't able to make it this year was the only my only negative and everything else was absolutely positive um it was absolutely great to uh just kind of link up with uh, everybody else in the community that, you know, we've been talking about the case on the Facebook group and it's been growing. And, uh, you know, we got more people from the group that came this year. Um, we had a lot of people from the group last year that kind of when it started and then we got a bunch of new people and, you know, Ryan was, you know, Ryan's kind of one of the first guys that, um, you know, that I kind of caught attention to that kind of jumped on the group. Um, I don't know, maybe around this summer, right, Ryan? I don't know exactly yeah, yeah. when you, kind of popped on probably around this summertime um and there's a bunch of other cool people that kind of just kind of jumped on like on this late wave right before CooperCon, and it just made it so cool um because me and ryan been um so just to kind of give a little backstory uh probably i don't know maybe six six seven months ago back in may uh eric did a little gold mining i call it gold mining he went to the uh, excel spreadsheet of the uh of the db cooper tie so back in i think 2017 uh tom took the the tie to macron's laboratories right and then he did his own stuff with his own little uh microscope and then it was limited especially now knowing i've talked to tom more and what what the scope he's working with before so 
Um, basically, he had a uh, travel channel hit him up and be like, hey, like, what do you want to do? Like, we want to get you on and we want to do something to kind of make a splash. He's like, yeah, let's test the particles on the tie. I got these stuff. Well, not really test the particles of the tie, but I took the stubs to these particles and uh, I got these stubs. And if you want to test them, this will be a really cool thing. We could probably come up with some leads and stuff like that. So Tom did that. Um, back in 2016, 17 for the his for the um, not for the history for the uh, travel channel thing, he already had uh did another previous cursory check before, but that was just like under his own personal scope. But then when we got it to McCrones on the uh, <coughs> on on the uh, Discovery Channel thing, we got over a hundred thousand particles, and this is this is based on. Three sticky stubs, I think, if I'm correct. Maybe Ryan can correct me. But I think he took, like, three stubs to the tie. And obviously, he didn't even get all of the tie with three, with three little sticky tapes. But he got over 100,000 particles on these little three sticky tapes that he was able to get. Um, maybe he got a couple more, a couple, uh, at least a couple more, maybe, if, if, uh, if I'm not mistaken but i know he at least got a three good stubs on there and we got over a hundred thousand particles off of those three stubs and these particles are very unusual very rare stuff that you wouldn't come in contact in our normal everyday life i can guarantee you that um there's a mass amount of titanium particles mixed with um, antimony, the three main ones that Eric was able to actually find on, on his discovery, but there's also some mixed with palladium. There's just a bunch of titanium. There's titanium mixed with stainless steel. There's a lot of just rare earth elements and, and minerals and stuff like that. Just normal person wouldn't walk um, into this kind of stuff in a normal environment. Uh, Tom K actually tested a Boeing employee's uh, tie to it. And, you know, there was really nothing on it that even got even close. There was very few particles on that. Um, so the tie particles is kind of what started a whole new kind of thing um, into it. And then when Eric found, you know, three particles specifically on the, on the spreadsheet that, that matched with the specific, uh, specific company, um, all bets were off at that point, and we just kind of uh, – this was about six months ago, and then we started digging into Eric's lead um, because I think he uh, he dug into the tie particle analysis, and he kind of struck gold in there. Before that, uh, we just kind of had uh, Tom um, Tom identified some unusual particles, but we still didn't have a, a signature that could tie back to anywhere, and I think, uh, I think Eric kind of did that with his last look into the particles, and then we've just kind of been rolling – from that starting back in, I don't know, maybe May, maybe like six, seven months ago. It was late May. Cause I know exactly where I was when you called me about that. I was in Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> okay. Speaking of the South, uh, Ryan, if I would have asked you a year ago, what are the odds that you'll be in Vancouver, Washington for the DB Cooper convention next year? What would you have said? Low, low, <laughs> low, low, low. I mean, especially you know, my opinion of basically my opinion of the vortex was almost exclusively from, you know, the curmudgeonly old men on online that I've been reading for a decade, Georgia and Flyjack and these types, you know, just lurking. And then, you know, 
poor shutter site is like there's tumbleweeds blowing through there right now. I mean, yeah, that is a little bit weird how it's it's shifted back to the drop zone. Yeah, I don't understand that. But the thing about the drop zone is it's more user friendly, I feel like. Um, even though it's one giant thread, which I don't like giant threads. I hate, I hate mega threads on forums. I hate them. Um, and I even brought that up to shutter on DB Cooper forum. I was like, Hey, you know, w- these mega threads, I mean, they're kind of hard to, why isn't there a thread for gossip? You know, why isn't there a, a, a thread just for Kenny Christensen or whatever, you know? Um, and so drops, but yeah, things have shifted back to drop zone, but no, I had no intention of, like I said, I was a Uber lurker. I mean, I would email people, um, but I had no intention. But then the Facebook group, you meet people who are actually maybe younger, a younger demographic, I guess, is what it is. Um, people have more the higher energy, I guess, or you speak the same common tongue, I guess, um, and you're not so beat down. You're more optimistic about things. Um, and so that's when you meet people like Eric and Nikki and uh, Dave Foodman and Chris Cunningham, all these people like this, these great people. And to get to meet them at CooperCon was cool. Um, you know, it was just a wonderful experience. Uh, and I, I never, you know, Eric put me on some panels and I, I'll be eternally grateful for Eric. When I saw the panel list uh, and I saw that I was on there, like five of them, I saw that I'd be sharing the stage with Bill Mitchell on a suspects panel. I saw that I was going to be doing on stage with Bruce Smith. I mean, I'm not ashamed to say I, I, teared up a little bit i was like oh my god this is like a dream right <laughs> i get to share this it's just it's gonna, it's gonna be me and nikki and bill mitchell on stage together just the three of us you know shooting the bull about cooper suspects uh and that's what was so much fun about CooperCon was you know getting to interact with uh, these people and with bill so i'm on so i'm on central time when i'm out in in vancouver my my biological clock is you know so i'm waking up really early you know I'm way before everybody else so every day for CooperCon, me and uh, Dave, because D- Dave's even worse, because Dave uh, lives out in like you know Virginia and DC area, so he's East Coast time. So we're the early risers. So me and Dave, a few men were really the first uh, people at breakfast every morning, except it was me and him, uh, and uh, and Mark Beretta from the Facebook group. It was, but usually the usually the three of us and Bill Mitchell. And Bill Mitchell was there every, every time for breakfast. It was basically, we, we had our little breakfast click almost. And we, so we had breakfast with Bill Mitchell every time. And it was just so much fun to hear him uh, tell his stories. And uh, I'll relate one of the stories that he talked about at CooperCon for everybody to listen to on this podcast is that he said that he was traveling. Him and his wife have been, ever since he's retired, him and his wife have just been traveling America. You know, they're just all over the place, going to football games with the Seahawks and they're going all kinds of stuff. And he said they were driving through Pennsylvania and they just happened to see the Shanksville, you know, the flight 93 m- 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 Memorial was off the interstate. So they stopped at the, uh, at, at the uh, flight 93 m- Memorial and a uh, bill was just, it really hit him. It really hit him emotionally that, you know, let's just say Cooper's bomb was real, um, that he could have been killed. He said, I thought about this, you know, my children never would have, he said, my children never would have existed. You know, my grandchildren never would have existed. And how many people on flight 93, you know, woke up that morning and had bad luck, just like, just like I had bad luck being on Cooper's plane, but my bad luck did not result in my death and theirs did. Um, And it really affected him. And he said he was really emotional and was kind of just walking around there. 
And he said, a female park ranger came up to him and said, sir, are you okay? He said, he said, yeah, I'm okay. He said, I was on a, I was on a hijacked plane myself. And the first thing she said was the uh, DB Cooper plane. And he goes, what? Like, how would you, how would you know this? This is a park ranger in Philadelphia and out in Pennsylvania. She goes, well, you know, there weren't that many skyjackings um, back then. And, uh, and then she started thinking, she goes, she goes, you're Bill Mitchell, right? He was like, what? Someone knows me from a park ranger knows me. So this woman had recognized him from TV and stuff. And she goes, oh, you're Bill Mitchell. He goes, yeah, that's me. And he said that it's really affected him how basically he is a, it's like a, on my last podcast with you, I said, these people maybe are starting to embrace their footnote in history. You know, the older they get, um, like with Tina coming out of her shell a little bit, you know, the older they get, they go, okay, you know what? If this is, if I'm going to be a footnote in history, then I'll be a footnote in history. And it is, you know, it's fine, you know? And so that's what, really what he told us. He said, that's what he's starting to do is he's embracing his footnote essentially. Um, and, you know, getting to interact with people like me and Nikki, you know, he, he enjoys that. And that's why he loves going to CooperCon now. And I, I posted on the Facebook group, the very first day of CooperCon, the very first presentation, I believe, you know, it was may have been Tom Case presentation about the uh, the physical evidence. I looked over to my right and I saw Bill Mitchell eating out of a tub of popcorn, listening to a lecture about his his hijacking. <laughs> and I thought that was so that was so. I said I posted on Facebook. I said I said this is this is the surreal thing you get at CooperCon. You get to see Bill Mitchell eating eating from a tub of popcorn, watching someone talk about his hijacking. Only at CooperCon. That's why you have to come to CooperCon. So it was cool to interact with him. And also just to hear him <clears throat> say some things off the cuff that I'd never heard. Um, like he said that, you know, he can't really see him. And we all know this. He, he says, my memory is not really there, really, of Cooper. But he said what he does remember is the vibe of Cooper. He says, I remember his vibe. And his vibe was not threatening. His vibe was not intimidating at all. He was a geeky old man basically is what he said. He said, this guy, you know, and he said too something that we had never heard before. He said, he always, he said, I, over the years, looking back, I always felt like the sketches were way too young. And he's talking about even like the Cary Grant sketch. He said, yeah, that. He, said that. That. he said, he said, it's too young. He was older than this. Yep. Um, and he was basically saying that, look, you know, when I was 21 years old, you know, I had an ego, but I wasn't going to call a 45 year old person, an old man. You know, I knew what an old guy was and it wasn't a 40 year old, you know, so um, that was interesting and, and unique to hear him say these things. And also for him to say that he said, you know, over the years, the FBI, they showed me all these photographs and all these pictures of commandos and skydivers and all these Billy Badass types. He said they just showed me these pictures of skydiving groups and all these soldiers. And I was just thinking when every time I looked at these pictures, like that wasn't him. Like he wasn't this guy. He wasn't commando guy. He wasn't Superman. Uh, he just looked like a greasy old man uh, to me, and wasn't yeah. at all scary. Yeah, and we have uh, we have uh, we have we have the students going back to talk with Cooper. You know, Cooper said I didn't bite, and then we have we have Florence. We have Florence going back there and actually engaging in conversation. Um, yep. I I think we have. Um, of Alice doing it too. We also have Alice doing it too. So, you know, this is a guy that has already threatened your lives in a flight and you're already all this whole time, this whole rigmarole. And, you know, he's threatening you with a bomb and you're going back 
to the plane now where the guy is threatening you with a bomb and you're now chalking it up with him. Basically, that's what happened. They yeah, they are yeah. now going back and they're exchanging in dialogue. That tells me, along with what Bill Mitchell is, what Ryan's kind of said, that this guy wasn't a threatening, imposing kind of force. He was more of a, like an old grandpa. Uh, that's how people saw him, I think. Um, and that's why we kind of see the actions that kind of transpired. Yeah, yeah, there was just no one that they weren't physically intimidated by him. And like I said, I, I've had a psychologist discuss this with me that, you know, that the girls weren't sexually intimidated by him is is the, the blunt way to put that is that females, especially young females who are 21, 22 years old, you know, if it was a rack straw type, if it was a 29 year old commando, they may have been fearing some sort of physical assault from someone like that. And they were not fearing a physical assault from Cooper because there was no reason for Florence Schaffner or Alice Hancock to be back there shooting the shit with Cooper. What? They weren't ordered to do that. And, you know, Tina was prefer- basically Tina was commanded to do these things. Yeah. And I can personally but- speak on this because I, I've seen Rack Shaw actually kind of give that imposition on a female before. So that's what he normally does. So the fact that Cooper didn't do do that, that that kind of tells it's another indictment on Rackstraw. It's maturity, but we don't need that. But it just it just talks to the maturity that DB Cooper had. Um, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't some kind of young buck trying to hit on these stews. Obviously, yeah. if if he was, if he had something going on, Bill Mitchell would have uh took an account and he just called him a geeky old guy. And I'm going with what Bill um kind of kind of went within in his analyzation because he had a reason to look and that's what I'm rocking with. Yeah. And, and it's like Bill said too, that, uh, you know, the FBI in trying to get a better picture of what the description of this man was basically asked him, you know, could you have, could you have beaten him up if you wanted to? Like basically if you had gotten, in a, could you have gotten in a fight with this guy and who would have won, you know? And Bill was like, I, I would have won. He's like, you know, I could have yanked him out of his chair if I wanted to. Um, but it's funny, though, because Bill Mitchell made a joke about how he's like, you know, what if I had tried that and it had been one of these guys like Ted Braden? He said he would have kicked my ass for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that'd be embarrassing. And I mean, Bill actually said that. He said that would have been pretty bad. He said, he, said, he, said, he said, so thank God I didn't try to do that if it had well, been one of those guys. But that wasn't yeah. the vibe he got. And also, I always make a point, too, about Cooper is, you know, when, th- think about how when you're playing trivia. They say, oh, the first, your first instinct is usually the best, right? Your first impression of a trivia answer, go with the first answer. Well, the very first impression we have of D.B. Cooper, literally the very first, is a handwritten note from Florence Shafter, Shafter that she wrote down moments, literal moments after she walks to the cockpit with that note. So this is a woman who was minutes from actually having Cooper stare her down and look her in the eyes and say, read that note. And she writes... He is in his 50s. Okay. So, and I would say that people are oftentimes conservative in guessing somebody's age because we like to be polite, maybe. So, um, when you say someone's in their 50s, you know, that you're, that's saying something to me. And like I said, this is literally moments away from looking in his eyes that she writes that down. So, you know, that's, I I think that's uh, important to, to, to keep in mind that, um, you know, Bill said it. Bill said that Cooper was older than the sketches looked. You've got, 
you know, uh, Lawrence Schaffner saying in saying in his fifties, um, even, you know, um, if you, if you read Norjack, Himmelsbach goes as high as 55 years old in Norjack. He goes, I'm looking for somebody who's, you know, 40 to 55 years old. Um, and I do think that men, it's difficult to determine, you know, just from my life experience, I sometimes, I sometimes have a hard time knowing how old men are in their fifties, late, late forties, fifties can be difficult. Um, Eric Eulis is 56 years old. For those who don't know, Eric Eulis is 56 years old. He looks 45 to me. Um, me too. So I, 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 especially when you're wearing sunglasses too, this is another thing too. You go to a golf course and, and look at, look at dudes wearing sunglasses. I mean, are they 45 or 55? I don't know. Especially if their hair is dark. Um, and then uh, one other thing I want to add is when you're wearing all black and you're wearing a skinny, a skinny tie that also yep, adds yep. to the slim factor. Makes you, um, you know, Bill Mitchell, height, Bill Mitchell stresses, Oh, skinny black tie. That's one thing he stresses skinny black tie. So a skinny black tie, an all black suit, it's going to give you an appearance of a, a, a little bit taller than you are. I feel um, so we got, you know, we got the, the tallest, we got the, we got the tallest description coming from, um, coming, um, from the, the gate agent, right? Yeah, how, who, yep. How Williams, who sees him standing off to the distance, right? He's looking off into the, um, looking off out the windows while everybody else is more by the stairs, by the gate area. And they're all talking about, oh man, it's, it's going to be rainy. We're all going to get wet. They're all just talking about the weather. And then uh, Hal says Cooper's off to the side and he's kind of looking out the window. He does. He seems unfazed and uh, he's not interacting with the other, with the other folk there that are talking about the bad weather. So again, from a distance wearing all black skinny black tie. Um, look at those guys from a distance. They're, they're going to appear a little bit taller than they are. Um yeah. And he, he says six told, one plus six one but plus, that, but that's, that's what the hardest. I, it's the tallest we have. That's a, that's the tallest one we got in the files. And you know, from looking from a distance, he didn't look. I mean, maybe he came up and gave him his ticket. We don't know that. He didn't say that in his um in his testimony. He didn't say Cooper came up and gave me my ticket and I got a close up look. His testimony said I saw him from afar, and this is what I kind of observed and. I noticed people in all black and I saw this guy in all black again, all black skinny black tie from afar. It's going to look a little bit taller. Um, so the, we got, we got Tina, we got Flo, we got Bill, especially Bill. If this guy was very much, if this guy was six, two, six, one, six, two, and, and to Bill, I think he wouldn't have had that kind of same, um, Oh, I can just I can just grab this guy out of the out of his seat and just kind of bully him. I think he was a little bit taller. Bill would have been a little bit more like, whoa, you know, he would have he would have recognized the height because he was he the same for, height. He yeah. was looking for attractiveness. Bill was looking for attractiveness. So height would have figured into the attractiveness factor that Bill was looking into because he was wondering at at the end of the day, Bill's going to come back to this. And he might get a little bit of heat from his wife and from other things, but he's like, you know, why is this blonde? Why is this blonde giving me no love? You know, yep. 
I'm I'm big. I'm burly. I'm taller than Cooper. I I I, I don't see think Bill's taller than Cooper. And you know he was looking at him like, yo, what is this guy has got going on? And he couldn't really figure anything out. You know that's why I think Cooper was more of a a nondescript. He was average. He wasn't as tall as Eric wants yeah. to put him. But if you want to put him there, I mean we we have a couple of estimations estimations, but. It's not in the exact height of Cooper. Well, I would argue this is that so, you know, with with respect to Eric, Eric, Eric does make a, a deal about the height a lot. Um, and that's fine. Um, but, you know, I mean, I would say we're the issue is that is that Tina, Tina on her first interview says five, 10 to six feet tall. And then her second interview, she goes six feet tall. OK, thing is, if somebody is. If somebody's six one or six two, that's my size. I'm a tall guy. Um that's taller, that's down? taller than me. Yeah. Even. Why are you going I mean, back down to five ten. Yeah. So so uh, could you possibly I don't know, how could you get down to five ten? If she was willing to go as low as five ten, nobody would look at me. Nobody would look at me and, and estimate as low as five ten for me. Just wouldn't do it. Uh, I, so I, I think he's somewhere between five ten, six feet tall. Which is what we mostly have. We have the the stewardesses. Florence says six feet tall. I think Alice. Pro, I think Alice might say six one. Um, another thing to consider too is these were. I mean, they, these were small individuals. You look at pictures of Alice Hancock in her high school yearbook. She's pretty short. Um, you know, and and as I've said before, people tend to exaggerate height uh, when they're in. I mean, this is something I know from law. I mean, this is an actual. This is legitimately studied. Uh, with witness descriptions is people will exaggerate the size of things. They'll exaggerate the size of the knife and the pocket knife was actually, this, I mean, it was a machete, you know, or, or the person who's intimidating them, they will exaggerate the height of the danger. You exaggerate height and you, you, you exaggerate the size of the danger, whether it's the gun, the person. Um, it's notable that the men uh, all said he was smaller um, than, the, than the women did. Now, granted, the women did see him stand up. Um, I, I'm guessing. Um, we know that Tina saw him standing up. Tina stood next to him. We know. Um, Florence says that she sees him putting on his parachute when she's leaving the plane. So she at least did see him in the aisle, perhaps from a distance, standing up. Um, so, but again, you know, our suspect that we'll get into later, he's five foot ten and a half, barefoot. That's the thing. We, you know, when you look at draft cards. You need to look at um, the, the draft cards are our best resource for determining the height of Cooper suspects because there's no BS there. It's not like you go to the, it's not like you're going to the, to, um, to the, um, to the uh, DMV and they say, how much do you weigh on your driver's license? Right. You just, you, you just get to convince something, right. You know, these, these are not inventions. You know, the army had a vested interest in knowing how big you were. Exactly. Um, for example, for example, Sheridan Peterson, his, his says six, one and three fourths. I mean, it's ex it's exact, um, and uh, our suspect Verdial was five ten and a half, and that's barefoot. So you put shoes on a guy, and he's he's going to look five eleven to to witnesses, right? I mean, because you know, you, and, and all and all. Black yeah, I mean, I, I don't see a problem with height for Verdial at all. And actually, you know, Vincent Peterson was six two on his draft card. So that's a tall guy. That's a really tall guy for the time. It period. is a tall guy. I would be quicker to accept Cooper being five eight or five nine than I would be that he's six two or six three. Yeah, six two barefooted. 
I would, it's like the first description would be he was tall. He was a real tall guy. That would be it. Exactly. That would be it. And they, and they mentioned him being tall. They do mention he was a tall guy, but it's not like, oh my God, he was tall. He was tall. He was tall. A super tall guy. And that's what they would have said in 1971. Even now, someone who's 6'3 or whatever, 6'2 is, is, is notably tall. Um, and they mentioned Cooper being tall, but it's not the emphasis. It's the emphasis you see is swarthy and things like this. You don't see the emphasis isn't on the height. So, um, you know, and again, Bill Mitchell sitting next to somebody. If I'm sitting next to somebody on a plane, people can say, well, you can't tell how, t- you can't tell how tall somebody is when they're sitting down. That's fair. But when you're on the same row as somebody, we can recognize, I can recognize somebody who's my size, essentially. I mean, I, you know, our brains work that way. And especially I would say with men too, um, guys are, and this is something I've learned through the, through the law, through going to symposiums and continuing legal education classes I have to do on witnesses, is that same sex is good at, is better at, basically the same sex is better at judging the height and weight of the same sex. So like a man is better at judging a man, women are better at judging women, height and weight. Um, and you know, that must be some kind of caveman thing where you size somebody up to fight them, you know, um, you know, but think about how we play sports, right? I mean, you know, we're all about, you know, oh, that wide receiver six, one, you know, or whatever, you know, we, we're good at that sort of stuff because we, we care about it. So I, I'm willing to trust, you know, and, um, you know, didn't, you know, Dennis Lenz, who didn't get a good look at Cooper, he admits it says five, 10, five, 11. Okay. Now, just because I can't tell somebody's face doesn't mean I don't know if they're tall or not. I mean, you know, he did, wasn't really paying attention, but again, six, yeah. two is tall, you know? And I, I struggle with like how Williams and Dennis Lynn's because he's one of hundreds of people yeah. that they shuffled through and they didn't have any reason to notice him until the FBI comes back and says, Hey, let me ask you about this guy. Right. If I go to Kentucky fried chicken today, and say, hey, there was a guy here yesterday in a trench coat carrying a briefcase. Do you remember him? If they say yes, the details are probably not accurate. He was just another guy that got fried chicken there. Yeah. One of hundreds. Whereas if Tina Mucklow is going to spend five hours with somebody. And she, and she knows says five, to 10, notice six, him. Yeah, she knows to be, be, be aware. And look, I mean, that is another issue with Vincent Peterson is he had a... Well, let's clarify real quick. Vincent Peterson is the suspect that Eric Euless announced at CooperCon. Sure, yes, and and, and um, he's a Rimker employee, the same as Milton Bordal. Um, and we we even have a we even have a photograph of them together, which is just remarkable. I think that, um, that is got pretty a, good. W- when I clicked that over at the CooperCon uh, on the big screen, I I, I hit a button, and I, we surprised Eric because we had found that earlier, like that week, and um, that that it was Vincent Peterson in this photograph. We didn't know. We, we had this photograph. We didn't know who was in it with him. And it was Vincent Peterson with him. So we surprised Eric with that. I'm sure he was delighted to have a picture because he was wanting a picture of Vince, uh, younger Vince. And um, so we, we, when I popped it up on the big screen on the PowerPoint, it got a huge gasp and a, and a, a laughter and applause in the, in the auditorium. It was pretty cool um, to see that. Everybody just started laughing. It was kind of funny. But, I mean, Vincent Peterson has a deformed finger. I mean, that is on his draft card. He says he's missing a joint. Uh in one of his fingers, in his right pinky finger, you know, uh, which, and I'll defend Eric on this. Um, I will say that um, you could make an argument that that's why he kept his hand in the briefcase at all times. I mean, he did keep his right hand in the briefcase. That's fair. And that's what I, that's what I, as a lawyer, would have to argue. I would I'd make that claim. 
that that's, you know, but at the same time, what about after the passengers leave and the briefcase is never mentioned again, right? He's lifting, he's lifting the money bag. He's, he's handing them the, he's handing them the money, right? He's handing them the, the here, here, take this cash as a tip or whatever, or he's you know, cutting, or they're watching him cut the, you know, cut the shroud lines, right? Or, you know, he's putting on his parachute. Is, is that deformation not going to be noticeable? And I, I, would, I would, I mean, maybe um, I use the example that um, Scotty in Star Trek, James Doohan was literally missing an entire finger on his right hand. And he hit it so well. He had his finger shot off on D-Day, actually. Uh, Scotty from Star Trek. And he hid that He hid that on TV. So if you ever watch Star Trek again, like an old episode, you'll see Doohan hide his hand very well. He hides it very well. So people who have deformed fingers can hide him well. Um, so maybe he did that. But to me, you know, and again, the, the blue eyes thing, ah, you know, Peterson's got baby blue eyes. And I really do think that Baby blue eyes are more notable than brown eyes, um, or more memorable to me. So I think that's a that's an issue that Eric has to overcome uh, with Peterson. The other thing with yeah. Vincent Peterson is he's got like a Jay Leno chin, which <laughs> for me, if you have a suspect that has some blatantly obvious feature, if your suspect was sporting a mohawk in 1971, or if he had a really big nose that looked like it had been broken several times before. Right. Uh, that's that kind of stuff. You're going to say first, tell me about right. this guy. Well, Oh, he had this big crooked nose. Oh yeah. He had a Mohawk. Oh, he had right. giant Dumbo ears. He had the, the same chin as Jay Leno. That I'm stuff sure comes out right away. And that's what you remember. Yeah, but and it's all like we have, we have we have Bill Mitchell specifically looking for that type of stuff for those features. We have Mitchell looking for why he's unattractive. The turkey neck. Mitchell, yeah, he was picking on him. Yeah, Mitchell says I was picking on the guy by noting his turkey neck. Like that's why he noted the turkey neck was because that's this guy that's pretty, turkey neck. Yeah, that's pretty much what he came up with. He had a little bit of flab on his on his thing. Um, Which he was age induced, by the way, is that he and Bill agrees with that. Now we had that discussion at breakfast about how it wasn't that he was a fat guy or had a double chin. Bill's like, I'm older now. I know now that that's just gravity. That's just an age induced thing happening there. Um, which also speaks to an older Cooper, I think, um, is that he had the loose skin that people start getting when they're in their 50s, you know, and older. Um, but no, I mean, it, and it's not to attack Vincent Peterson. That's the thing is that like, you know, Eric, and see, Eric, whether it's Peterson or Verdial, Eric can have the satisfaction in knowing that none of that, neither of these guys are even on the radar if it's not for his, him finding the, the titanium antimony particles. So and that's how he came and, to Vincent Peterson. Yeah. And that's how he came to Verdial. But the thing is, is that there is no Verdal if it's not for Eric. Right. Yeah. So it, it's, it's this. It's interesting. Let's it, just say, for example, that D.B. Cooper was Verdal. You've got this chain of people who you can all thank. Like, we can thank Larry Carr for bringing us the real Cooper. Joe Weber started started the forum. Let's, let's go back right. to Joe. That's right. Joe, I mean, yeah, this, but then you get Larry Carr, then you have Tom K. And then you have Euless finding the tight high particles. Then you have, you know, Chris Brower on our team who found this patent. Um, and then, you know, we've got all these things. And so Euless 
you know, Eric gets to claim a victory either way. If it is Vordal or if it's Peterson, he gets to claim a victory, honestly. And he should be proud of that. Um, so it's not to attack Eric. Um, and our guy has flaws too. It's nothing about Vordal is that he's, you know, no suspect is perfect. And that's the thing is that nobody, I mean, the witness statements are, are pretty variable, you know, I mean, they're all over the place, really. I mean, we can kind of, you know, mush everything together and get an idea of what we think Cooper was. Um, but we're not sure. Um, but, you know, we'll get into Milton Vordal later on. But the one thing you talk about the Jay Leno chin, the only thing that D.B. Cooper had that was notable to more than one person that was a was is, is his lip. OK, he had a pouty lip. Uh, we have. We have Alice Hancock and Tina Mucklow using that same term at different times in 302s, pouty. So like a baby's pouting, like your little lower lip is sticking out. And we have Roy Rose uh, in his interview with his grandson on YouTube saying uh, all the stewardesses said, the first thing they said to me was, well, a middle-aged middle-aged white man wearing a suit, um, a darker complexion with a protruding lower lip. Now, you know, if you just got a regular kind of heavy lip or something, that's not noticeable. I mean, that's not – so something was something was unique about this man's lip. And if you – most people don't no, don't notice it when they look at the D.B. Cooper sketches. But once you see it, you see it. His lip is, is fat. It's weird looking. There's something going on with his lip. And then you look at uh, Florence Schaffner's, you know, Count Dracula sketch that she did for Unsolved Mysteries. And that is noticeable. This, this, she remembered that 18 years later, this weird fat lip thing going on. Um, so that's more – I mean so – to me, that and, and Milton Vordal has that in spades. He has this weird lip that is that, that looks precisely like what the sketch artist drew, like literally precisely right, like like it. Um, so noticeable features. You know, we'll get into Milton uh, a little bit later. But going back to CooperCon, um, I'll just say that uh, Eric took us to Tina Bar, which was cool. Um, he had these. Uh, Eric was kind enough to show us. You know, he has a good relationship with the Fazios, so he was able to show us uh, Tina Barr. So to, so to go out there was cool. I mean, it, it looks nothing like, you know, I mean, you know, the, for those who don't know, I mean, basically where Brian dug the money up is now like 15 feet out into the water and like eight feet high off the ground. It's, it doesn't, you know, it's an invisible point above you and out into the water because the sandbar has changed so much. Um, but that was cool to see the actual spot and to know that, Perhaps D.B. Cooper was here. That's kind of cool. Um, you know, it's almost like a sacred site in a way. Um, it's like a, you know, it's just kind of, it's a kind of a sacred thing. Uh, but the CooperCon was cool. Bruce was there. Uh, I'll say that Bruce did not like Milton Vordal. Um, when, you know, when, um, when I got off the stage, uh, one, one of the first people I walked up to was Bruce. I said, Bruce, what do you think? He goes, no. <laughs> it's like, he crosses arms and goes, no. And um, he wants you know, it to be a commando. He does very bad. He does. Um, he does. He does very much. Yeah. So. But Bruce was so generous. Uh, I walked out after the first panel and Bruce has this big uh, crate of books. It's just free books. So he was giving away all his free books. He was giving away all his Cooper books. And I was, you know, I'm not going to lie. It wasn't uh, I was like the kid. I was like the bad kid on Halloween who takes all the candy when it's like, take only one piece. You know, and the kid takes all of it. I, I took four books. I was like, mine, you know, so I greedily, I, I mean, they were free. It didn't say one per person. So I got, I got, uh, 
McCoy book. I got his Tosaw book. I got his uh, Idiot's uh, Frightful Laughter. He showed him Peter Peterson book. And I got another book by Nuttall, this uh, D.B. Cooper. I forget what. Uh, case D.B. Cooper Case Exposed. Yeah, Case Exposed. And I've not well, read it I'll yet. spoil that book for you. It's trash. It's, it's pretty interesting. He covers oh. the skyjacking and some things. And then uh, about halfway through the book, it takes a hard right turn and blames the mob. Oh. And the, the guy who authored that book, like that was his specialty in the FBI. Okay. So it's kind of like, of course it would be the mob because everything was the mob. Yeah. It's, it's like the JFK assassination, I guess. It's it's the mob did it. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, but, you know, I mean, we, we, we can get into that. It is kind of funny that, you know, we have to remember that Vegas at this time was still owned by the mob. Um, so if, you know, there, was, there could have been some shenanigans going on, you know, Vordial had a place outside Vegas at the time. Uh, he had a, uh, I believe one of his children was going to school at, U, at UNLV at the time. So, you know, who knows? I mean, they're, they're not, the Vordials are not mobsters. I can promise you that. Yeah, um, but there's but, still, there still might be a little woo-woo, you know, we're, we're hoping, man. We're hoping there's still a little woo-woo with, uh, with Ferdal. So, uh, you know, Bruce yeah, you we never know. Yeah, you never know. I mean, he's an interesting character. We we, we love Milton Vordal, I'll just say. Um, we'll get into him in a little bit. but um, Let's but, get into him right now. Let's, okay, let's do it. Let's yeah. start with. Oh, let's dig. You, uh, you guys and Eric are sort of looking into the, the TIE Particles, REM crew. At what point does Eric split off towards Peterson and you guys sort of split off towards Vordal? All right. So I can talk it. I can talk about that because I'm, I'm kind of at the beginning of it. So we're, we're maybe go back to May, uh, May of this year. Right. So Eric, Eric um, struck gold, I think um, has, has Tom, like Tom put it up. He struck gold. He went into the, uh, into the uh, Macron's lab spreadsheet and he went in there. He went in, he went in digging hard and he found three particles, very unique characteristics. These three particles are a high, uh, a high antimony looks like to be alloyed with, with pure titanium. So we have pure titanium mixed with the high antimony of so what the patent we found calls for up to 18%. We found um we found 17 the three ones we found were 17s and one 16 point almost 17, but basically right there up to the number. Um so that that when Eric found that, that kind of uh, spurred a bunch of uh, spurred a bunch of things in the investigatory uh, investigatory game. I would say um, we we're like, oh man, Rem Crew. Um, he kind of put a flashlight on it, and we we're like, oh man. Um, so we started looking. He had a patent for nineteen mid nineteen fifties, and we we're looking, and we kind of found uh, more a few more nineteen fifty patents, and we we're looking around. And, um, I, you know, I was having trouble, you know, kind of figuring out like, yo, like, how does this 1950s kind of alloy that they were working with get on a 64 tie? Because it seemed like it was already done at its time because doing research on titanium antimony and how they were alloying, it seems like by the mid 50s. This was already researched, already kind of done, and the 
the melting points were were too hard to make commercially. So the antimony with the titanium, the pure titanium, the melting points were too off. So it was hard to actually produce in the commercial capacity. And then we have other research done from the Air Force that said it was hard to melt it down as well. So it was hard to produce. It was hard to melt down. This was already already found out before the tie even came to play in earliest is 1964. So all this work was already done. It was already, you know, kind of figured out. This is not an alloy of use. It was done. You know, once I heard Eric's finding in May of this year, he's like, yeah, they have a patent for REM crew and it's from the 50s. And I'm like, oh, OK, it's cool. But I'm like, man, I'm like, how does someone get on get it on a 1964 tie? I'm struggling. I'm like, oh, at this point, I'm looking like for cross contamination. So I guess one of the there was not even one REM crew employee from the ones that the patents that Eric's provided that even worked at REM crew. All of them were from Battelle Memorial Institute that were in Ohio. And so I'm looking at those guys thinking maybe there was some cross-contamination on the tie and all of this. And um, and I couldn't really find any connection. And I kind of reached a dead end. And then Chris Brower. So shout outs to Chris. When Eric first came on the Facebook group with this information, he did his, uh, his YouTube video. Chris reached out to me and he was like, oh, and he's like, yeah, you know, I got um, – you know, I was in the military. I got clearance, and you know, I, um, I'm I'm down to I'm down to work with you and kind of help you find some stuff out. I'm like, oh yeah, cool, man, definitely, man. Let's work, let's resource, and then so, Brower started finding out some stuff, and then we're and then we were just um, completely down the uh, the road of Battelle Moore Institute because all of all of the patents that have been provided. Up until that point, we're all from Battelle Memorial Institute. They were all inventors from that company. I didn't have one REM crew guy yet. And Eric's already saying that, you know, it's from REM crew because they held the patent and all of this. And I'm just like, well, I don't even see a REM crew guy on the freaking patent list. So I'm going down Battelle Memorial Institute. I'm looking into all of these guys. And um, I got down to... Um, I got I, I got down to uh, Midland, Pennsylvania, where all of this stuff was happening from REM crew headquartered. Um, and I started making some connections. I got some old school people that were down there, especially this one guy, Nick Ravel. Shout out to Nick, who says, man, he told me he's like all of the REM crew stuff from the SR-71 Blackbird is still down here. DOD documents, they're all still down here in this basement in this mill that's behind uh Watco rail. And I can, if you want, if anyone's interested, I can show you the building. It's, it's still there. And in that building, there's all of the documents that trace back to REM crew titanium who, who were the freaking biggest player at the time. They got the skin on the SR 71 blackboard, a uh, blackbird. That's part of Milton Bordal with actually Vince Peterson, who are two of two of the uh, suspects being brought up at this point. Um, so bringing it back all over there and then other stuff with the SR-71 and everything like that, um, we pretty much narrowed it down to 
this specific location, Eric's already was on the right lead, and this is kind of where we're at now. And Milton Doll seems to be the best fit for pretty much all the evidence that's out there. And then um, Ryan can add a little bit more context. I just spin off. Yeah, on Ryan. yeah. Well, basically, what I'll say is that so basically, you know, <clears throat> this as Nikki said, the titanium antimony alloys are really rare. Um, these are things that in the fifties they made, and then they stopped making. Um, because they were difficult to make. And, and some of so, the stuff they were making, they were just making it to patent it and then trying it, something else. That's right. It's an experiment, basically. And that's what this was. Um, so Vordial um, seemed to really, he had, an, he, had a, he, he had a love affair with titanium antimony. Um, there are 13 patents out of, out of crucible steel. Uh, well, there's 13 patents that crucible is involved in that involve titanium antimony. Every single one of them is Milton Vordal. He's the, he is the only Remker employee listed on these. Okay. So, you know, the 1950s come and go, and there are no titanium antimony alloys being made anymore because they have moved on because this, this crap don't work. Well, until 1965, uh, Milton Vordal goes back to his old girlfriend, so to speak, titanium antimony for one last fling, and, and he makes this patent called rolled metal articles and uh he's like hey babe how you doing and the titanium antimony goes not too well uh <laughs> there's a reason why we don't do this anymore so he goes oh yeah you're right but he gets his patent and nothing ever comes of it um because it's not commercially viable um, and this that was sort of in 65 65 march of 65 and as eric has shown the tie came out in about in 64 and he believes that it would have been sold out this particular run of ties that were made by 1966. So it's right in the time frame when Verdial or whoever comes into contact with this particular, I mean, basically the way to put it is there are very few people in North America at the time who are still messing with titanium antimony of that high percentage because it Nobody doesn't accept Verdal in my opinion. It, it, it's really, it's just rare. They had quit doing it. Okay. Um, it'd be like if somebody was trying to do coding today and they were using a Commodore 64, right. To do it. It'd be like, who the hell's doing this? Why are you doing this? You, don't you know that this doesn't work anymore? Well, he did it one last time. What's funny is it's actually, he puts on the patent. This is a continuation from a patent that was abandoned in 1960. So like around the time when they stopped doing it is when he stopped it. I guess his bosses were like, Hey, knock it off. But he wanted to do it again. So we have this patent going to Milton Vordal. Um, and for us, you know, the difference in, with Vincent Peterson and Milton Vordal is that Vordal is the actual patent holder of this thing. So he is the only person. If this is, that, if this is, what, we're if this is what we think it is, um, that, that it's a titanium antimony particle, um, Vordal, it's his patent. So we can unequivocally say that we know for a 100% fact that Milton Vordial was still working himself with titanium antimony during the Thai era of D.B. Cooper. Is um, there any the way that I could get titanium antimony, the same caliber on my clothes today? Unless your name was, Vin unless your name was Milton Vordial post 1964. No. Yeah. They don't, they just don't do it. I mean, basically Chris Brower is an amazing amazing researcher i mean and nikki calls him the our, our bloodhound he can find anything 
and he's the one who found this patent. And he found, I mean, he searched the patent office uh, database. In the, in the decade of the 1960s, you know, there are literally two patents, two, that are alloys of titanium and antimony, where the antimony is over 10%. Two. And one of them is Mr. Milton Vordal, and the other is out of a place called Sprague Electronics, which was an electronics company that also their patent, because it's titanium antimony and it's tough, it, they were trying to put it in a transistor for radio or something like this. And they they abandoned it. They abandoned it too. Basically, this patent was never used in a product because it wasn't commercially viable. So there's two, but Spray Electronics has nothing to has nothing to do with aviation, whereas Milton Vordal, uh, let's not let's let's, let's let's remember that Milton Vordal, um, 93% of the skin of an SR71 is a Milton Vordal patent. Okay, 93%. So that is hella impressive. Uh, to me, and what's interesting though is that they uh, the the paper that was written for about the SR the academic paper about the metal alloy of the SR seventy one is co-written by Milton Bordal and Vincent Peterson, which is kind of interesting. So, and it's there's symmetry here for people who don't know the SR seventy one was actually used to look for DB Cooper, and as far as I know, that's the only domestic use that I'm aware of that has been, I mean, I checked the website and I think that's the only time that it was used domestically that has been admitted basically. And we found this in the FBI files. They flew five flights um, looking over the, over the, over the drop zone, essentially trying to look for a dead body that was rotting. It had the heat signature um, to look for a canopy that was stuck in the trees that somebody missed. They tried. So there's symmetry here with the SR 71. Um, but but Rim Crew, this company, which should be mentioned that we're talking about here, they their products are in these are in the Boeing 727. Their products are in the C-130. Um, their products are in the SST. I mean, they, they had a incestuous relationship with Boeing. Okay, I mean they were we we've got Milton Vordial on the floor of Boeing. We've got Vincent Peterson on the floor of Boeing. I mean, you know, traveling out to Seattle, we have uh, we found uh, articles where Boeing brought video footage to the Rim Crew uh, facility and set up a projector a projection and was like, here, you know, where they're keeping the Rim Crew guys up to date on how the progress of the construction of these aircraft is going. Um, and that's something interesting about Vordial is that this man, you know, w w when we're looking for Cooper, I would say that if you read the FBI files. And I agree that basically Cooper had an intellectual knowledge of aviation, but not a practical knowledge of aviation, okay, which he didn't know how to lower the door, okay? He didn't understand that they probably couldn't make it to where they were going when they're flying dirty, as they call it, with the, you know, gear down. And, you know, there's things that he kind of doofused around a little bit, but they're not intellectual things. Um, he understood the layout of the aircraft very well. That's what Tina says. Like he knew where the oxygen was. He goes, I don't, I know where that is. And, you know, well, somebody who had blueprints and somebody who watched the, the 727 be constructed with perhaps their own patents. We, we're not sure if there are Vordal patents in there, um, but Vordal has 20% of all patents from Rim Crew. So 20% of all titanium patents done by Rim Crew between like 1950 and 1970 are Milton Vordal patents. Wow. So 20%. So, Stands to reason that um, his pay, that he 
has stuff in the 727. So, you know, he's a guy who actually invented part of the 727, which is fascinating. Um, so we have him. So we have a guy who has intellectual knowledge. Um, but let's talk about Milton Verdal. He is from, well, I'll just say this. So we weren't really sure uh, when Nikki brought me on board the team. Uh, I have access to a software um, that I use for my law firm that can look up records from way, way back when. Um, and basically, we wanted to know, you know, kind of where Milton Verdal was from. And you go, oh, wait, this guy's from Washington State? That's kind of on the nose, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, we go, oh, okay. I mean, this guy could have been from Miami, could have been from New York, could have been from Mississippi. And we go, oh, well, okay. Well, so this, let's talk through the progression here. So I was a Ted Braden guy for a long time. Okay. I love Ted Braden. I, I still think Ted Braden, I still in the back of my mind wonder if Ted Braden didn't meet Bordal somewhere in a bar and kick his ass and steal his tie <laughs> and, then, and then blackmail the sketch artist. <laughs> with a photograph yeah, of Milton Bordal saying, you draw this or I'll kill your kids or right. something like, I'm just, cause Braden is so perfect. For bias. <laughs> He's just great. Right. But I am objective enough to go, you know what? I am going to follow this path. So we've got a guy from Washington. Okay. That's cool. I'm like, okay, Nikki, that you, I'm intrigued a little bit here. I mean, I've not seen a photograph of this guy. And he's 58 years old at the time of the hijacking. That was the first thing when Nikki said he's 58 years old. I said, Oh my God, you got to be joking. And he goes, no, I'm not. You know, he, Nikki's LOLing going, I'm serious, man. You know, help us out here. I'm like, this guy's ancient. I'm not doing this. Um, but I start looking at the guys from Washington. We go, okay, that's kind of cool. And then we look and we see, you know, aviation experience. We go, okay, that's kind of neat. He's, he's writing academic research papers on aviation. That's kind of cool. Okay, well, what's his personality like? Is he like Ward Cleaver? Is he like leave it to Cleaver dad? Is he <laughs> most no, guys? He's a, he, yeah, well, no, suspects, a, you can't even know what they're we don't even know because there's nothing even out there. We got oak pads from freaking Vordal up the ass. Yeah, so we go, is this guy perhaps antisocial a little bit? Um, well, yeah, he is. He's a unique guy. He's not I mean, he's not a criminal, which again, <laughs> DB Cooper, if you you know look at the FBI and I think they're right on this, DB Cooper was a one-time criminal essentially. And uh, so there's no criminal history for Vordal. But he's a unique individual. If he was boring, then I, I would go, well, you know, I don't know. But he, he is an interesting character. We have him being very opinionated. We have him – one of the first things we do on Cooper Suspects is you, I look at their draft card. That's the first thing I do because I know – I want to see how tall this guy was. So he's five foot six. He, he's not Cooper. You know, well, Bordeaux five ten and a half. you know, brown hair. You was know, he in the service? No, but he was, but he had a draft card. So if we jump back to the service, Milton Verdal was on a Manhattan project. So he was exempt from being drafted because he was building the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. Um, and we actually in his obituary, he only, he only had one published obituary and it was in a metals, it's kind of metal progress magazine. Um, yes. It mentions that he actually oh, received yeah. an actual commendation um, for solving some kind of equation that was going to threaten the fat man bomb, which was made in Hanford, Washington. Um, again, the bomb was dropped on Nagasaki. They may have had to scrap the whole thing, but Bordal shows up to the rescue and solves this thing. And that's his great contribution to World War II is he, you know, contributed to this um, and saved the bomb. So that's kind of neat. Um, but 
no, he was not in the service, but his draft card, um, you know, shows how tall he was, shows, you know, but, um, so I go, okay, is this, this guy's from Washington? Is he antisocial enough to hijack a plane ever or even think about it? Well, he's, he's a unique person. Um, he has all these op-eds that we found on newspapers.com where he's, he's, you know, he's funny I mean, he's funny, but he's, he's kind of biting sometimes. I mean, he's, it's, he's very curmudgeonly. Um, even when he's not an old man, he's curmudgeonly. Um, he's grumpy. It seems like grumpy about, satire would be how I would describe it. Yeah. Brain. It's grumpy. He's like, Hey, state department, why don't you come back to earth and live amongst us mortals here? Or he, he'll call out people for, you know, uh, he calls people homo sapiens or, uh, he'll, he will call, uh, he calls wars rumbles. It's one of my favorite things he does is he's like, Oh, Mr. Bush's rumble in Iraq, you know, or he goes, Oh, the, um, the recent rumble in Vietnam. And he just calls wars rumbles, which I think is kind of cute. Um, <laughs> um, but he's, he's, he's a unique guy and you know, there's some darker op-eds there too. I mean, you know, there's pe people are free to search it out, you know, if you want to. Um, but you know, he's, he's, he's kind of, I would say that his politics, I don't know how to describe him. Uh, I would say, would you agree? He's probably, he'd be a libertarian today. I would think. Yeah. Seems like it. Yeah. He's always talking about personal freedoms and, and stay out of my business. And, you know, look folks, we even have op-eds where he's bitching about the cost of golf. He's like, golf is too expensive at golf courses. Now he says only the elites can play golf now. Uh, and then we have an op-ed where he's, talking about dogs he's not he was he wasn't a fan of dogs he talks about being bitten by dogs while, while he's jogging he goes i'm sure these dogs who bit me while i'm jogging i'm sure their owners would say they're so nice and would never hurt a, and, would, and would never bite anybody he's like well they bit me while i'm jogging you know and he, he gripes about dogs uh one dog urinates on a pie that his wife put out on the porch <laughs> he does not like dogs so He's kind of a curmudgeon sometimes, um, but the man was a true genius. I mean, like when we say genius, that phrase can be uh, overstated a lot of times. You know, this guy's a genius. He, he he wrote a heck of a poem in ninth grade. You know, no, no, Mildemar Dial was a genius. I mean, there's no doubt about it. This man has 85 patents to his name. He has patents for explosives. For um, uh, in World War II, before he was on the Manhattan Project, he went to go work for Remington Arms, uh, and he made a uh, I believe it was a 30 six, which is what our riflemen use in war two. I think he improved like the shell casing of it, which made it cycle better and, and rifles. So he contributed to the war that way. Um, so, but we have uh, him patenting, uh, what is it? Beer fermentation. Like he, he wanted, like he, he basically, he figured out a way to like, you know, refrigerate beer better um, for people. He was a winemaker. Um, he grew organic food. Like he was kind of, he was kind of a organic hippie before it was cool. Um, he liked to eat his own. He was a healthy guy. He worked out all the time. Apparently uh, he was a excellent athlete, which people say he's 58 years old, but this is a guy who's a heck of an athlete. I mean, we have him, we have uh, newspaper clippings of him uh, winning senior tennis tournaments when he's in his like seventies. So, I mean, he was playing tennis into his seventies, um, played golf every day he could. His grandson told us that he played golf every single day he could. Um, he split time between Washington and, and Las and, uh, outside Las Vegas. We assumed that his, him, he and his wife, uh, you know, snowbirded in this, in the wintertime and came South. So, so he could play golf, I guess every day. Uh, he was a great golfer, a great athlete. Um, but all these things kept adding up. And so one of the things that I love to do about with Cooper is to, as a lawyer, I like to poke holes in things, right? That's just what we do. We look for flaws in cases. 
Um, and I look for flaws in people. And so I would call these things silver bullets. Like, for example, Kenny Christensen, his silver bullet is you've got two of them, really. Um, he hijacked his own airline, which doesn't make any sense. And number two, the man for a job lowered the aft stairs to, 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 to a 727. That was part of his <laughs> job description. Yet suddenly he can't remember how to do it. He's like, oh, I don't know how to do this. Like, that's, that's a silver bullet, right? Um, a rack straw is, you know, for, for kind of freckly. If you look at him in color, rack straw's got kind of freckle faced in a way. Um, and he's 27 years old. McCoy has his lisp and he's a southerner. I mean, these are silver bullets, right? And when I did, was brought on by Nikki, I tried to kill Verdal. Because remember, I was all team Braden at the time. And I tried to kill Milton Verdal and I couldn't do it. Like, everything adds up with him. Like, in, and then, then you go, well, how about parachute experience? That's the main thing. We have no idea if Milton Vordal ever skydived. But maybe he did, maybe he didn't. We don't know. Um, but that's not necessarily a silver bullet with Cooper. When you look at that uh, Martin, Martin McNally, Frederick Heinemann, and, uh, and Richard LaPointe uh, apparently had never even put on parachutes before in their lives. And they jump out and survive. So and survive just fine, actually. I mean, Heinemann, right. Heinemann's and on the run. Now he jumps into a 330-mile-an-hour headwind. Yeah, he's spinning around, and he pulls his, he pulls his chute. And um, it's important to remember that um, you know, the parachute that Cooper jumped with was meant to open if you're jumping out of a death-spiraling aircraft, spinning out of control, and you're a novice. This parachute literally is designed for novices to live. Pull ripcord, it'll work itself out, no matter if you're spinning out of control – It'll open is an emergency parachute. It's not some fancy rig that skydivers use. So he didn't need to be a pro. And um, honestly, I was able to put on his parachute uh, at CooperCon. Um, you know, I watched uh, 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 John Limbach, one of our members on Cooper on the on the Jack. Cooper group. Uh, John's a great dude. I watched John saunder up to the table where Mark's parachute was, and Mark and he just looks at it, and he snapped it on in like 30 seconds. I was going, damn. And he, I said, I was like, you know, he's, he's, he had never done that before, ever. He'd never touched a parachute. So it's not like it's rocket science. And again, we're dealing with a literal genius here. So, it, you know, to think he couldn't figure out a parachute is, you know, of course he could. He understands mechanics. You know, this guy designed, you know, you know how to put titanium parts onto aircraft and things. He, he was not stupid. Um. So the Milton Vordial train, I had to have these things met. This guy knows the Pacific Northwest. He's a bit antisocial. He's, you know, a, a genius. Okay. And one of the things in the FBI files is they talk about how he had, uh, Cooper had like extreme inventiveness. The word inventiveness is literally in there and it's in the psych profile. An educated man, a one-time criminal, inventive personality. Um, good with his hands, like, you know, Cooper MacGyver's this, I mean, basically, you know, Tina seems to be in awe that Cooper MacGyver's this, uh, you know, you know, Cooper freaks out when they don't give him his, his beloved knapsack. So he like, I'd, I'd be pissed too. So, but he MacGyver's, he cuts 80 foot of shroud line out and MacGyver's this bag thing, you know, that Tina's just in awe of him doing this. And he does it so He was main with no D rings. Yes, he was. Yes, Exactly. No D rings. Dan Grider, the D rings. Yes, but he's pissed off about it. So, but he makes this thing, 
And, you know, you look at a guy like Verdal, who is used to inventing things with his hands. He's very dexterous with his hands. I mean, these are inventions. I mean, look, we have him, uh, he made his own telescopes. And we'll mention that he made his own. One of the things that blew, blew us away was he told Nicky, uh, the grandson of Verdal, said that Milton Verdal made contact lenses for his children. Made them. Now, I have no idea how you make contact lenses. I but can't even Milton, fathom how you would do yeah, that. Yeah, and I'm not putting them in my – I'm sorry, Dad. I, I trust you, but I'm not sticking this in my eyeball. Oh, yeah, but, I'm definitely not putting anything my dad made on my eyeballs. <laughs> but he did it. He did it, and we also have him making his own telescopes. I mean, like, this guy was into optics. He was into grinding optic lenses. I mean, this guy had the skill set to do this, and people will say, well, no, he didn't. He wasn't some commando, but he had the skill set. Not even, not even the skill set. Like, let's just go to the resume. Who, who's the, who is the top inventor at Rem Crew? It's Milton Verdal. Who's from Washington? Yeah, or, or which Rem Crew guy is from Washington? Milton Verdal. And now I'm going to say Mil- it all day long. The more patents, the more particles. Yeah, right. I mean, that's something else too. That um, I, I, I made a spreadsheet, or I made a uh, basically, a, a, I made a searchable PDF of all of his patents that Verdal had in the era of the tie okay so and all these weird elements like vanadium and barium and all these strange things they all show up in his patents all of them like there's literally basically nothing on the particle list that isn't something that got on that, that he would have been exposed to yeah so it's like you know if you if you go watch tom k's video from a few years ago um it's on youtube about the about the tie it's a wonderful video tom is basically saying who the hell is this guy like who would have this on their clothing? Why? Who? These these are so weird and unique. And uh, well, here's a guy who literally all of these things, even the super rare titanium antimony, can be traced to this one individual. Um, and you know, so we learn all these things, and then again, we're following this guy without even seeing a picture of him yet. So we don't know what the guy looked like, other than he's. Well, five. I mean, we we found a photograph where he was old, an old man. Well, and even the old man photograph, when I saw the picture, I said, "Oh my God!" Because I've been looking at D.B. Cooper sketches my whole life, right? I see an old man picture, and I go, "I see something in there." I see. And I even texted Nikki. I said, "Man, you might have done it, man, because this guy really looks like, you know, what? It, it, it's so. I mean, I mean, Darren can attest to it. For those who haven't seen it, I mean, as an old man, you see." part of the Cooper sketch in there. And so it's fascinating. You go, okay. So then we get a passport picture of him and we go, Oh my God. And he's wearing a suit in the picture, which is great too. In his passport photo, he's wearing a suit with a small skinny tie on it. Now his skinny tie is like a, it's, it's a actual tie. It's not a clip on. It's a floral pattern tie, but in his passport picture, we have him wearing a, t- a skinny tie and a, and a dark suit. I'd which, like to say you know, one thing about the tie. Cause we keep saying skinny tie. And then in the FBI files, they all point out it was a skinny tie. And the reason everyone's pointing that out is because that was not fashionable at the time. It would have been more fashionable to to have a big, wide tie. Precisely. Yeah, it's out of fashion. It's an old man, an old man clothes, basically, or somebody who didn't want to adjust to the modern times. Billy Um, got it. Yeah, it's this, it's this, it's this tie. So, and, and another thing too, for those who are just listening to this. All this talk about a tie. These men wore ties, okay, in their labs. They did, okay. 
the old guys. There, there are, we have video footage. We have literal video footage from 1965 of a uh, competitor to Rim Crew of their R&D lab. You know, it's one of these like promos they made like, oh, maybe one day you can join the Rim Crew. You know, maybe one day you can join, you know, you, little Billy, you can be a steel worker too. And it's like showing these guys in their labs, right? These chemists. And they're wearing these ties. They're wearing skinny black tie, clip-on ties, as they're pulling these, you know, you know, sparking metal, you know, ingots out of a furnace, and they're and with their big heavy gloves on, and they're still wearing their stupid little ties. So that's how you get, you know, a hundred thousand particles on your clothing because it's sparking off this flaming thing. So they wore ties, and they wore clip-on ties because if it got snagged in machinery, it wouldn't choke them to death. So they wore clip-on ties. So this is something that these people would have worn. Um, so when you follow Milton Verdile, you just keep seeing all these things. And then we get this passport photo. And my God, I mean, everyone's got confirmation bias for their suspects. But folks, I mean, it's, it's, it looks really close. Um, I mean, I would say, I mean, I, again, everybody says their guy looks like the sketch. But the, the brilliant thing about Verdile is he looks like every sketch. Like, he you can find a does. photo of, yeah, he really did it. Weird. You can find a photo of Milton Verdile that looks like every single sketch. Okay. And he's got the lip. He's got these, these really thin, he's got these thin, like pointy eyebrows that you see in the Cooper sketch. He's got this kind of jowly scowl sort of in a way that is in the Cooper sketches. And it's really, it's not so much a scowl, it's his lip. And um, this is a sidebar, but uh, one of the uh, passengers in the 302 says that Cooper had a – he's trying to tell the sketch artist how to draw Cooper. He says, this guy had a – he says he has a – I think it's Robert Gregory. He says he has a disinterested sort of let's get this over with look. Okay? Now, if somebody's wearing glasses, usually the – if you're disinterested or you're, if you have a let's get this over with look, that comes from your eyeballs. Right? That, that comes from you know, looking at somebody in the eyes. and You can see someone's being bored in their eyes, right? Well, if you're wearing sunglasses, how could you tell somebody's disinterested and looking like, let's get this over with? Well, if their lip is pouty out, right? We think about like the, the, a bored little kid who's like, oh, man, some little bored kid who pokes his lip out when he's bored. That's what they're seeing, I think. I think that's what he was seeing is this fat lip. And he's thinking that, that that's him just being disinterested looking. Um, so, but Verdal has this lip. He has this, he has the eyes. He has these brown eyes. His ears aren't sticking out. There's no Dumbo ears. His ears are symmetrical he has a tall big wide forehead which cooper had um which is a unique feature he has these high cheekbones you know um he really looks like sketch and everyone says that but he, i mean the guy really does and i'll say that when we showed his photograph at coopercon there was a gasp in the audience when when i clicked that clicker and showed his picture people gasped um because it is very striking um it's almost haunting a little bit if you look at it it's real close um, the nose is skinny and long. Um, you know, he's got these, he has, he has wrinkles exactly where the sketch has wrinkles in his face. It's, it's really weird. Um, so, and like I said, we didn't even know what he looked like until a month into this. Right. And I think that's what sets us apart from other people is people will work backwards. You know, they'll get a, oh, this guy looks like the sketch. I ain't, I ain't to make him DB Cooper. Well, we didn't even, we didn't even know what he looked like until we were well into this. So I think that, I mean, again, he could have looked like Chris Farley for all we knew. And well, that would have been that, right? If he looked like Chris Farley or if he looked like me or if he looked like Darren or Nikki, well, 
I guess, well, hell, I guess that's not D.B. Cooper. But the guy looks like D.B. Cooper. So you got all these weird things. You have the particles. You have the guy living in Washington. You have his, his kind of antisocial personality. You have a, a, a genius inventor guy who could, who could come up with this whole heist. And we have a guy who looks like the sketch. And we have a guy who's the right size. Um, and then you say, well, he's too old. You say, well, he's too old of a guy. Well, again, we have you know Cooper being in his 50s. Um, and so much of your age is in your eyes. And we also believe that uh, Milton Bordile uh, colored his hair. We have a re we have um, a picture of him with a bit graying hair, and then I, we have a subsequent picture where, where he has dark hair. So um, I do believe he dyed his hair, you know, which is something that people um, talked about with Cooper. Is his hair looked weird? You know, I mean, you, you don't even get a, you don't even get, have to really to get down to that fine minute with Mill Verdal. Um, you just basically at the end of the day. Um, there's nobody that's going to be messing with a titanium with over 18% antimony past 19, past 1960 time period. Um, I have, I have plenty of documentation that I can link that by that time, there would be no reason for um, a, a metallurgist lab to be messing with that type of uh, mixture. Um, it's, it's been already predetermined since the date of the tie that it'd be hard to produce and then it's hard to actually melt down. So it's hard to produce because um, I'm not going to get on the actual, the technicals, but it was hard to produce for one reason. And then uh, because uh, it was hard to melt down for another reason uh, the, for the produ production reason, it's because the melting point and, and um, and something else was too high between titanium and antimony. There is no reason by 1960 anybody would be fucking messing with um, a titanium antimony mixture. It just it wouldn't be anything a lab would be trying to mess with. the uh, the The jury was out. All the information was out on that on that type of information. As far as alloying titanium with antimony. There's really only one guy for some reason, Milton, he has a history with it. He has the only he has the only history with it with Rem crew. If you look, if you look at all the patents, they're all the rest um, guys from the Memorial Institute. There's only one guy from from Rem crew that actually messed with this kind of titanium and antimony mixture. And for some reason, in 1965, we decided to concoct another deal. Um, when it wasn't really even, even um, like there was no reason to really do it, but somehow Milton did it. And you go back and you look at the history, everything was done in the mid fifties. Everything was already figured out. There's no reason to, to alloy SB with tie. Um, but aside from Milton, for some reason he had, uh, yeah. he had, he had some kind of a look at it and he wanted, he did a little thing back in 1965 at the end of the day. And that's the only reason, um, I can see about anyone would be mixing that type of type of thing in the time period. Yeah. And yeah, I'll mention, period. I'll mention too, uh, another thing about Verdal is the name Dan Cooper. So let's get into that. So I was just going to ask you about the grudge next. So perfect timing. Okay. So, well, I guess we'll get to the grudge in a second, but so Dan Cooper, um, you know, everybody wants to know where that name came from. And yeah, maybe he pulled it out of his butt. Yeah, I mean, that's, that could be just as likely, right? He opened a phone book or just whatever, but, 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 but. So I found a few months ago, 
I was going on an archive. So I was going on archive.org and I was trying to find any Dan Coopers that are, are predate the hijacking in American literature. You know, we have the Dan Cooper 1010 comic that's everyone knows about and this Belgian, you know, um, but I was like, maybe, you know, maybe it's somewhere else. And sure enough, I found a short story that is in a aviation magazine called Air Trails from 1937. And it's a short story where the protagonist is an airline pilot named Dan Cooper. He's a rock'em, sock'em, jock'em airline pilot. He's this super stud airline pilot who, on a dark, stormy night in the short story, he's flying across Texas, his, air, his passenger airliner, and these like bushwhacking bandits fly up on him and start throwing rockets at his airliner. And he has to crash his airliner on this dark, foggy night next to a mountain, right? And he, everyone survives the crash, and he gets out, and these bad guys land their planes nearby, and he gets in these big fist fights. This, you know, it, it's this pulp action hero, Dan Cooper, and he's getting in these fist fights with all these bad guys, and he's kicking their ass. But the thing about Dan Cooper, though, is that the name Dan Cooper is used as a literary device. This is an eight-page short story, and I counted Dan Cooper being used over 50 times. So the, in, in the article, it's Dan Cooper laughed. Dan Cooper took a drink of his water. Dan Cooper threw a punch. Dan Cooper did this. So it's, it's, it's basically a, it's a, it's a rhythmic literary device he uses. So it's Dan Cooper, Dan Cooper, Dan Cooper. Well, you go, okay, well, that's in a random magazine from 1937. Okay, yeah, Cooper would have been a teenager, a little bit older at the time. Okay, but would he have, would he have accessed a random magazine? What are the odds of that, right? Well... In this magazine, I, the page before the Dan Cooper short story begins has an article about a guy, a pilot named Clyde Pangborn, who rescued a woman, a female parachutist, got stuck on, got stuck on his wing somehow. And he climbed out of his aircraft and undid this lady's parachute from his plane, and she dropped to the earth and lived as he's flying this aircraft. It's this, it's this Clyde Pangborn featured article, right? It's right before the Dan Cooper short story. Well, a few pages after the Dan Cooper short story ends is another Clyde Pangborn feature called Wing Commander. Ask, it's like, a, ask me anything of Clyde Pangborn. Ask anything of Clyde Pangborn. Well, we looked it up. Clyde Pangborn was from the same area as Milton Vordal. Clyde Pangborn's mother and Milton Vordal's mother played competitive bridge on the same team for years. Okay, we have Clyde Pangborn and Milton Vordial in the same newspaper articles. Okay, it's likely these guys knew each other. So you say, okay, what are the odds that a random American would have had this comic book? Well, we have this have this magazine. Well, we have this magazine where hometown hero, friend of the family, Clyde Pangborn, is featured twice prominently, and right in between the Clyde Pangborn features is the Dan Cooper story. Okay, so to get from so to get from, you know, the first Clyde Pangborn feature to the second Clyde Pangborn feature, you have to flip through the Dan Cooper comic, you know, so that's notable. Okay. So we actually, obviously we have an actual reason why Vordial would own this Dan Cooper short story. Yep. And then if you want to go into the Dan Cooper, um, the, the Belgian one, if you want to go with that, I think we got it covered as well. There was only actually two issues of the Dan Cooper comic published in 1971. So they only published two issues. One of them was called Seal de 
Norvege, which is Norwegian sky. As we know, um, Milton Verdal was uh, from Nor from Nor uh, from Norway. His parents both came, and he was he was born here uh, from them here uh, here in, Sp in Spokane from Norway. And um, what you see on the cover is what you pretty much see what happened, what was going on in Pateros back in the day, which was snow and uh, reindeers pushing the uh, the sleighs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's all kind of like back backtrack to like how uh, how he was kind of doing back back in Pateros back in the day. But it, I just want to point out that there was only two episodes of the DB Cooper comic um out that year and one of them was sealed in Norwich. Yeah, about Norway. So now we've got both Dan Coopers covered and like I said, if anybody you you tell me find me a find me a DB Cooper suspect who would have it who we know would have a reason to own that magazine from 1937. Yep. And if you want to if you want to say well well why would he pick things why would he pick things? Well here's the thing. Um he had two properties that he uh, bought in Vegas, actually, that were on um, that were on um, his 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 dad's Albert Street. So he bought two properties in Las Vegas on Albert Street, um, and that was the name of his dad. So if you want to say he didn't use things from his past, uh, he bought two properties in Vegas by the on the street of his dad's name. Yeah. So so. So Darren wants to move toward the grudge, and this is what we're going to talk about. And now again, I don't know if the grudge matters. Um, for me personally, people make a lot of it at the grudge, and they say, you know, well, Cooper said, "Mess, I don't have a grudge against your airlines. I just have a grudge." Well, I mean, that could be something just cool to say, right? Instead of saying, certainly, you know, instead of saying, "Well, Miss, I'm a, I'm a dirty thief," you know, it just sounds kind of cool, right? You're smoking your cigarette, so maybe it doesn't mean anything, but why would someone be so upset as to do this? Um, you know, and why would, why would a, why would a research scientist be upset enough to do this? Okay. Well, so we have to figure out a, a reason now, honestly, I, I think that you can only really know motive on these things. If you have access to the family, that's private stuff, right? That's something, you know, all of us have family secrets, right? And we don't know what was going on with the Bordal family at the time. And we may never know. Um, hopefully we will with cooperation from the family. Maybe maybe there is something that, you know, that, that, that the grandchildren will find out and, and help us find out, you know. But let's just say this. So Milton Vordial, after he left Rim Crew, he moves to Las Vegas and starts working for uh, Titanium Metals Co Corporation of America, TMCA. Also, they go by Timet sometimes. So he starts working for, the, for them there. Well, he then gets a house in Pateros, Washington. And we have him going back and forth um, doing work at the TMCA lab there in Nevada. Well, we, we found in August of 71, that laboratory was shut down. Okay, that, that titanium lab was completely shut down in August of 71, and 450 workers were fired. Okay, so Verdial's lab, where he was doing his consulting work, was completely shut down in August of 71. Now... The plant manager, like the one of the executive bosses of that company there in Henderson, Nevada, where Vordal worked, his name was Don Cooper. Well, so you have Don Cooper being an executive who's laying, who, who's closing the factory, 
and he's firing all these people, perhaps Wardile included. So his name is Don Cooper. So Dan Cooper is, is a skip and a jump away from Don Cooper. Uh, so that's what I would say is that um, that's another reason why uh, the name might be relevant. So you've got the Cooper comic, you've got the short story, you've got, I mean, who knows? But again, we're all speculating on these names. Maybe it meant nothing. Maybe it was the name out of the phone book, but Don Cooper firing 450 titanium workers two, you know, three months before the hijacking is weirdly on the nose, I think. Um, so, but my thing about Milton is that Milton basically was, a, he was a titanium genius, essentially. And the SST project, for those who don't know, the SST stands for supersonic transport. What that is, is that was basically the American version of the Concorde. Um, as we know, the Cold War was a giant blank measuring contest among the superpowers. And the Soviets had a supersonic tr uh, commercial jet. And the English and the French had one with the Concorde. So the Americans had to have one too. So Boeing won the contract to make this whole fleet of supersonic jets. Now, they eventually pulled these out of, uh, they eventually canceled the project because, hey, we had, hey, hey, you know, we, had, we had successfully landed on the moon. We had proven we were badasses. Um, and this thing's expensive. And also, supersonic jets make sonic booms. That's one thing when you're flying over the Atlantic Ocean and the Concorde to America. But if you're flying over Kansas City and you're shaking somebody's house every time you fly over, no good. So the public was very much against the supersonic transport. But it's, the SST, though, was massively uh, influenced with titanium inside of it. And we actually have uh, Milton Vordial on the floor of Boeing consulting on the SST. So this is clearly something that Vordial cared about. So the SST is, is canceled. Uh, his, his plant is shut down because of it. And we have, you know, Boeing uh, firing 30,000 engineers. Okay. So do you know when the SST was canceled? I, I believe it would have been in the, it would have been in the spring session of Congress. So at some point, you know, spring, late spring, 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 spring of 71. 70, yeah. So spring late spring, late spring 71. Okay. So that's interesting. Um, but so all these engineers, the, the 30,000 engineers are leaving Seattle. His plant is shut down. He has spent his life, his professional life, perfecting titanium okay this is his, this is his baby and here he's going to have a whole fleet of a whole fleet of aircraft of civilian aircraft that are a lot of titanium in there they're basically titanium aircraft in a way so and now that's shut down and so now he's it's now he's a 58 year old man with no gig okay nobody's going to hire him because you know there's no titanium work going on what does he do you know i don't you know and What's interesting is I use the term brain drain. I don't think Milton liked brain drain. Okay. Um, we have an article. We found an op-ed of him in, in the 1990s when the, uh, when the Super Hadron Collider was built in Europe. Uh, America tried to get the collider being built here, but it was ended up being built in, in uh, I believe, in Europe somewhere. So we have an op-ed where Milton is saying that this is a travesty, basically. He's saying that America has lost, you know, America cannot be second rate scientifically. You know, what it, you know, he says science is science is what separates us from the beasts, what he says. And by losing the collider, we are forsaking our, our intellectual future, right? So this is a guy who didn't like brain drain. And I don't think he liked Seattle losing all these people, losing all this stuff, canceling these scientific this man loved science. He loved progress. 
you know, it's like, it's almost like the opposite of the Unabomber. Unabomber hated technology. Well, Milton loves technology, like loves it, loves it, loves it, loves science. He's a man of science. He loved his science. Um, and so I just, it's almost like the man must have snapped or something um, because his whole career was building toward this moment. And then it's taken from him. You know, like I said, we, we have him on the floor of Boeing working with the SST. And I'm sure he thought it was a beautiful thing. This beautiful aircraft. Finally, we get a titanium civilian aircraft and the whole fleet is gone. And he, and, and, and his, he has no, cons I mean, I'll point out too that his last patent is published in 1971. So this is a man who has inventions starting his 80, 85 patents and they go from 1943, I think, up until 71. Okay. So, I mean, now that's not when the last, so it was, his last one was published in 71. The last one he applied for was 1969. But the point is, Milton Vordile, after, after, the, after, the, after the titanium crash, never has any more patents on anything. He's just retired, basically. Um, so his business is dead. His business is dead, basically, that he had been building this whole time. So that may have been a grudge, but again, maybe not. Maybe it was a private thing with him. Maybe it was something with his family. Um, you know, his grandchild told us, you know, he, he loved his family. Um, and maybe a son got in trouble or something. Who knows? You know, I mean, we, or maybe his cousins or a brother. I mean, um, it's interesting to note that his brother, for a second there, we thought maybe his brother did this because his brother was, his younger brother was a guy named Oscar. Now, Oscar was a badass in World War II. He was a pilot. Oscar uh, was credited with like sinking like two Japanese destroyers and a cargo vessel. I mean, and, and he flew uh, bombers in Korea. So Oscar's like Billy Badass brother, right? Whereas Milton's the nerd. Uh, Oscar's like the you know the the jock, I guess in a way. Uh, well, I was like, well, I was like, well, dang, you know. And he's younger too. I was like, well, maybe did, did Milton leave a tie over at his brother's house one one evening or something? Um, but Oscar's five foot seven, so we checked. Oscar's too small, and Oscar doesn't look like Milton. They look they, they look totally different for being brothers. So Oscar looks nothing like D.B. Cooper. Um, but for a second, there, I was like, maybe maybe it's the brother. Um, but so we don't know about grudges. Um, we don't know about financial incentive. And you know, the FBI speculates it. What it may not have even been about the money. Right. Uh, you know, maybe he was just trying to. Maybe it was a midlife crisis thing. Um, you know. And thing is, we don't know. People can scoff and say he's 58 years old, but he was an athlete. This is a guy who was playing tennis and winning tennis and in his 70s. So he was an athletic individual. Um, and we don't know what if he was a daredevil. I mean, I think about how like you know my stepfather was a dare, was a bit of a daredevil. You know, we, you know he would he would swim under under boats that had propellers going. He would swim under them. And my stepfather did did, did crazy things. He would fly through the clouds without a before he got his IFR rating. I mean, he would do things like dangerous when I was a little kid. Um, but how would someone know that 50 years from now, right? Unless they talked to me. And I said, yeah, my dad did these things. You wouldn't know. So we don't know if Milton, maybe he was a risk taker. How would we know this? How would we know these things? And that's why it's so critical to build a relationship with the family. And we, we feel like we have a good relationship. I've not spoken uh, to the grandson yet. Um, I'd, I'd love to speak to uh, his name's and I'd love to speak to him uh, um, about his grandfather. He loved his grandfather and knew his grandfather uh, as a grown man. Um, he was like 31 when Milton died, so he knew him very well, and he loved him a lot.
Um, but he has not said anything about, you know, there's no way this could be him. Um, he's not said it. He's not said it was him, but he's not said anything about how it. There's an impossible to be him. Well, so it tells of, me that in this case, guy. it's it's well known that you have this suspect, but then the family doesn't cooperate at all. They don't want to be involved. They don't want to talk to you about it. Yeah. How? What has the family's reaction been to this work, Nikki? Yeah, so I can speak on that. I mean, I got a, um, you know, I got a big like, you know, what the fuck, you know, when I dropped the bomb, uh, which which is completely understandable. Um, but then, uh, you know, I've gotten more, you know, the family's giving me more stuff after that, which, you know, I feel if, you know, if I told you, if, if I said your dad was D.B. Cooper, um, you'd probably know that there, you'd probably know right away, like, yo, my dad wasn't capable of it. And, you know, I would expect to be just, uh, uh, you know, be nullified there. You know, I've gotten actually um, stuff sent to me after the fact, after that. And, you know, that tells me that, you know, after talking with the family and, and stuff, they're they're really just, um, you know, they're, they're, they're more like trying it. to come to terms with it, actually, which is crazy. Yeah. Like, I don't they're not even trying to, like, even uh, investigate it. Like they're like really like trying to like, how are we going to come to terms with it? And that's where I'm just like, Whoa, like, okay. You're already getting to that point. I'm just like, okay. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, he gave us his, I mean, according to Nikki, you know, uh, his grandson, Hey, you gave us his blessing to do CooperCon, you know? And, and this is something else that I, I made sure that Nikki communicated to the family is that, you know, I would never, you know, I don't want to do press conferences. You know, I don't want to, I don't want to do any media about this, you know, unless, unless we find a twin our bill somewhere, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't, want, I don't want to go that route, you know, um, you know, the, the name is going to get out on the internet, you know, because of the, in the, in the family, I, I, you know, the grandson understands that. I mean, he knows, you know, I mean, here we are recording a podcast about it, but the scope is pretty narrow unless you do a, press release or something right so right this will um, remain in the vortex yeah basically i mean i mean he's he's he, he, i mean vordial is going to be known among uh, five thousand people you know or something right so it's it's not you know you know it's not gonna be on the news or anything so um you know they're not going to get that kind of attention um, because that but no i mean it's exciting and i hope to talk to the grandson soon i'd, I'd love to talk to him um in depth about about his grandfather because he loved his grandpa and he said his grandpa was a unique individual um for sure yeah um, which he definitely sounds like it yeah 100 yeah, man and, you know it's it's, it's going to be like you know it's like if you, you got that bomb dropped on you that you're that your actual that your actual grandfather was db cooper and then like you actually think that it might be possible that's kind of the rash we we've been having to work with here like, you know, we're not getting the, oh, no, you know, like my dad can't be D.B. Cooper, my grandfather or my whatever can be D.B. Cooper. We're actually getting an acceptance. But then that actually leads to we have to, you know, like, I don't know, like if, if you put me in that position and I got dropped that bomb on me, um, you know, I wouldn't really know how to accept it all either and how to come to grips with it at all. So that's kind of what we're working with. And, you know, we. We, you know, we want it to be all, all on the up and up and, and nothing, you know, 
to be like, you know, sucked out of the family or whatever. Like we just wanted to be all just natural and just kind of, you know, be part of the whole thing. But they didn't tell you like, oh, you're a fool, Nikki. You don't know what you're talking about. No, no, absolutely not, man. And, you know, like I've, I've worked, you know, I've, uh, I've been with, uh, with Plansick where I got nothing from the family. That wasn't on my part, but, you know, it was sort I, of ruined for you before you. It was kind of ruined for my beforehand, but you know, I'm saying if I would have gotten, um, you know, like no, I don't think my dad's CB Cooper. I think you're like, I think you're off the rock track. Then I would have been, you know, I would have like thought about things differently. But the fact that I haven't is kind of making me think that we're on the right track here. It is pretty interesting. Yeah, it, it it is. Um, you know, as far as I can tell, this is the only time when a suspect has been conjured out of thin air by a stranger, where the family of that suspect isn't like, screw it, you piss off, or don't talk to us, we're going to sue you or something, right? I mean, you know, that happens, you know, but the the you know. It, you know, Vordal's family has been so generous um, with giving us pictures and, um, you know, we're hoping um, to have a, you know, t- uh, he, uh, the, the grandson found a name badge that uh, Milton wore uh, to work with Timet. And um, Tom K heard that and Tom K about jumped out of his seat when he heard that he said, Oh God, can I please have him send that to me, please to my laboratory? Cause he wants to put his microscope on it, you know, and see right. if there's particles you know, because he believes that the, now the plastic would have, the particles would have wiped off the plastic, but uh, the, but the badge has, it's got crimping on the edges of it and particles can get stuck in there. So he really it's wants electric, to. As Tom said, it's electrically charged. So there's stuff on the corners and on the top that potentially could hold some of the same stuff that might be on the tie. That um, would be yeah. very interesting. That'd be very, that'd be very cool. Um, oh, you know. Yeah. And I'll, um, let me, Jump back real quick to uh, his. I'm looking at the web page now, and at, at Milton's picture, uh, Milton was dark skinned. Okay, Milton was swarthy. Okay, he was a, you know he looks. You know, one thing you have to remember about DB Cooper is he's described universally, okay, as having olive skin or medium dark complexion. Something was a bit darkish ethnically ish about him. Well, I had no idea until I got on this case that Norwegians are actually known for having olive skin. Like in my brain, I'm thinking all Scandinavians are, you know, you know, you know, have pigtails and, you know, you know, lederhosen things and they're blonde hair, blue eyed people. Right. But apparently if you actually Google like olive complexion, the, one of the first things, one of the first websites says olive complexion is, uh, says, uh, Mediterranean countries. Uh, and then it says, uh, Certain Scandinavian countries like Norway and and uh, Finland, uh, or, or Norway and Denmark or whatever. I'm like what? So yeah, like literally, I mean, Norwegians are literally listed. Like when you Google olive complexion, I was like, holy crap! You know, so I had no idea. They're, they're, the, they're the complete uni, they're the complete unicorn thing that you would like. You know, if you see olive complexion, then you're gonna think Italian. You're gonna think. You're gonna think Mexican. You're gonna think Indi- Indian. It's Indian. like you're gonna think the usual suspects. But there was there was a dark Norwegian that actually yeah. fit all those same things, and you would have never guessed them. You're not gonna yeah, guess you, a dark Norwegian because it's yeah, just you're not guessing out a, of the, a dark Norwegian. 
It's and it's funny is things. Yeah, and and Nikki, you know, Nikki found a thing where, you know, a, there was a a Norwegian actor was used to play Native Americans back in the 30s and 40s. Yep. His name was Keith Keith Larson, I think his name was. Yep, Larson. Yep, Keith Larson. So they used and they used an, they used a Norwegian man to play a Native American. Um, and so yeah, Milton has these features. Um, you know, Robert Gregory describes Cooper as having maybe some Native American ancestry. Well, you look at I, I see what he's seeing. Okay, I am part Native American myself. I I you know live near a reservation in Mississippi. I know what he's seeing. He's seeing the high cheekbones. Gregory was pro- almost certainly looking at the high cheekbones and the broad forehead that you, that you see on the sketch. Those are Native American features. Okay, and I think that's what he saw in Milton um, Verdal. Uh, if Milton was Cooper, is he saw that the broad forehead and the high cheekbones and the olive complexion and uh, dark, just dark features. You know, Verdal had these these dark eyebrows and just kind of a dark look to him a little bit. Um, and I think that's that's a critical thing. You know, more than the height issues, more than you know, even eye color, whatever it is. DB Cooper needs to be somewhat dark complected. That is universal. And I don't care about these. Well, he, he had a suntan or something. No, well, we know what a suntan looks like. You know, he, he had olive skin. And like I said, you Google olive skin and sure enough, Norwegians pop up. And it's like, what? So that was shocking. If you actually look how they were described, it's um, swarthy. Swarthy was actually maybe first. I don't know if you want to go back to the um, back to the first use of the word, but as far yeah. as I've swarthy, it was used one of the first times I've been able to see. As far as describing like dark Norway skies from that kind of uh, what's it? What's an Anglo-Saxon like? It's like a Schwartz. You know the, the the word you know black in German is Schwartz, so it comes it's just derived from like dark. It's, it's derived from like Anglo-Saxon like Schwartz, Svartli. So it's actually not like some Mediterranean thing. It's actually, I mean, this is a thing. So right. You know, so you, if, you, I mean, you know, it would have to be from you, Italy. Yeah, if you want to think Cooper was was Latin American or Cooper was from uh, Native American ancestry, that's fine. But you got to realize that. That was on the description, and that's who FBI people – that's who FBI looked for. So they looked for guys from Native American ancestry, and they looked for guys from Latin American ancestry. They looked right into the um, Native American uh, – right into the Latin Skydivers Club. That's that's one thing, I, like, right away they jumped into. So anything that had that complexion with the background as such, they looked into it, and they came up with nothing. To be honest with you, that's where I think that the the background, the ethnicity of a Latin, of um, of of a Native American, of a Italian, those kind of things, I think they just got it wrong with a certain type of background that might have also fit that you wouldn't expect, which was a dark Norwegian. You guys have sent me a, a bunch of different things on Milton, and very interesting stuff, but. Probably my favorite is it's on your your website here, norjack.org. And in case you aren't uh, as familiar with the case as we are, Norjack is N-O-R-J-A-K. But Spokane Chronicle, June 30th, 1989. Yes. 
The headline in the paper is Man Held in Killings, Suspect in 71 D.B. Cooper Caper About the Arrest of John List. And we all know List obviously wasn't Cooper, but he, of course, had to be a suspect while he was missing just because of the timeline and sort of he matches the basic description. But just to the left of that news story is an op-ed by Milton titled, Who's the Real Culprit? <laughs> which is so crazy and i mean yeah. obviously he couldn't have planned that unless maybe he knew someone at the paper or something but yeah it's so so strange yeah it, it's almost like it is the most it maybe is the most vortex thing i have ever seen <laughs> i mean i mean seriously how could you even i mean my god i mean that to have a a, a legitimate cooper suspect writing who's the real culprit right next to a headline about D.B. Cooper, you know, about, about a guy who was suspected as being D.B. Cooper wasn't D.B. Cooper. And also he even, you know, he, look, he even uses the word list in the, in the, in the op-ed. He uses high on the yes. list. Um, and what's funny is I actually had somebody who, uh, I can try to find it here. I actually had somebody uh, who, uh, you know, used, I, I uh, somebody looked at that article and tried to find uh, some like, you know, zodiac sort of like uh, cryptology in, in, in that in that article, and it's kind of fun um, because if you look at it, uh, you know, he uses words like, I, "he is," you know, it'll be that corporate something, and if you look at it, it can be, "I'll be that Cooper rat," instead of you know, I'll be corporate. That cooperative. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be that Cooper rat, and it's like. You know, it, it's so uh, it's so so cool to see, uh, you know, that article. But yeah, who's the real culprit? Written by Milton Vordile on the exact same page. And so, yeah, people can say that. People can say that's impossible. How would he have known that? Well, I would say this. Back then, you know, the print print media was always going to lag behind like TV media back then, right? So John List could have been, you know, captured the night before, you know, and you know, maybe, or, or, you know, or maybe he heard about it on the radio at like three in three in the afternoon or whatever. Right. Who knows? And, and maybe, you know, again, Milton had this real, like, again, he wrote a lot of op-eds for the, in the Spokane Chronicle. So, I, I mean, it's almost like he, he, he may have had the editor on speed dial, you know, and really when you read this op-ed, it, it almost doesn't even like make sense. Like it, It's really, it almost looks like it was just, spit out haphazardly, you know, it, like just, 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 just so he could use the headline. Like he, he just, you know, came up with some goofy op-ed just so he could use the headline. But yeah, who's the real culprit is so insanely on the nose that, um, man, it, it's, yeah. If you go to norjack.org, you can see, you can see it. And, uh, that usually when people see that, they go, Whoa, hello. <laughs> um, cause that's so, and again, who would ever expect that, you know, if he was Cooper, he was living in a small town of like 400 people in the middle of nowhere. So, you know, how would anybody have ever, you know, come up with that, you know? How would, how would ever, how would have nobody pointed him out? Oh, snap. There you go. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how would, how would anybody have thought about him being D.B. Cooper? You know, I mean, he says like, if he, I found it. So, yeah, if you look at the article, if you, if you look at his op-ed, uh, if you take out certain sentences, it says 
There appears to be a growing rancor. A bit of judicious sniffing around, however, reveals just a little more than a hint. It doesn't take long to find. Think for a moment. I just may be that rat cooper or cooper rat. Let's at least consider the possibility before we blame someone else. Like if you look, that, you can, that's that's cryptography, man. That's that's who that's, that's in there. It. That's not even us. That's not even our bias eyes. That's other people that's looked at it from a from a side yeah. view and they're like, oh, there's I mean, some there's some cryptography in here, guys. Look at all yeah. this. Yeah, I mean, you know, like, I, I hate I see I, I hate cryptography. I hate it. Me too. Because I'm like, this is so cheesy. <laughs> and like, you know, you look at like you know rack straws. Yeah, you look at rack straws letters and things, right? And you go, oh well. You know, I just hate that stuff because again, you know, like like I said, you can spell out. You know, I am Squ SpongeBob SquarePants, right? From the from the you know from DB Cooper's letter number six, you can you you can you know rig the numbers around you know you can you know, rig the letters around to say I am SpongeBob SquarePants instead of I am DB Cooper, right? But this is so on the nose that if it's legitimate, let's just say we're, let's just talk to ourselves for a second here. If I mean you know we all have, we all have fun in the vortex, but let's just be real for a second. If DB Cooper and Milton Bordeaux are the same person. There's no way that's a coincidence. It can't be. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it, to us, it's a coincidence because, ah, you know, maybe this guy, you know, we're, we're having fun with it. But like that is so insanely on the nose. Right. If it turns out Dace Cooper, right? And then all I, the I can't, all, all the particles on the tie. I mean, we got we got a sheer amount of titanium. We got titanium mixed with with. Um, we got titanium mixed with the antimony that we found. We got titanium mixed with uh, with um um with a palladium. palladium. With palladium, yeah. we have a bunch of TISP particles. I mean, I I am consult I am consulting metallurgists, people that know about these kind of things. And shout out to my guy Bloody Yanks. Um, I've been working with him on Reddit since since another uh, another guy in the vortex threw up a, a thing about DB Cooper's tie and he answered and he's been going back and forth to me and he's he actually arrived at Milton independently from us mm -hmm. and right. when I when I contacted him I'm like dude yo we found this part of we found this patent on this guy Milton Bordeaux he's like oh yeah like uh, I've already been looking at him I didn't want to say anything. Because I still don't got enough, but this is the same dude I've been looking at, and I'm just like, and this is an actual shit. metallurgist. I mean, that's, that's the thing I want to point out to people. This is, is an this actual isn't... metallurgist in the yeah. he lives in Albany, Oregon, and he's in the industry. So we got uh, we got people from the we got we got a gal writing a book on the uh, metal on uh, the Bureau of Mine, Chris Smith, who I've been working with. Um, I'm trying to, uh, we're working on something from REM crew as well. That's how I also started doing some research into the REM crew inventors and all of that. And, um, I'm plugged into the metallurgy people in the game. And from, especially from bloody, he's saying that, look, this is 100% metals, R and D research and development. All of the, all the sheer metals of, of, of just sheer titanium. And then we got the weird alloy particles. There's just so much that are pointing to metals research and development that that's where you got to start and then branch out from there. And we got yeah, Verdal. Yeah. We got Verdal as the best guy um, that I've been able to locate in the business. So we got, we got the metals R and D we got everything else branching out. We got the, He's from Washington. The, I mean, yeah, Washington it, it, State, which any that's the that's the main thing. Anybody else that I've looked at has no ties to Washington State. 
Um, like why why are you going to do this heist in a place that you have no idea? Like I understand yeah. you go you go from Boeing and you do a couple of business trips. That's not enough. Like you gotta know the lay of this land. Um I, I'm right, sure they didn't I'm have sure, Google Earth then. I'm sure no, Darren, they didn't. I'm sure no I'm sure Darren knowing the lay of the land that you're just not gonna pick the Pacific Northwest as like, oh yeah, this is ideal. I don't really know it that well, but I'm gonna go ahead and jump here. Is that is that something that no one that knows doesn't know the lay of the land and will just pick from a couple trips? No. Yeah, it's 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 so it's so, you know. I guess I I I do want to point that out that you know, the whole thing about we have independent metallurgists who don't care a fig about DB Cooper, saying yeah this is a metallurgist tie. Like there's no other reason that a human being would have metal you know. Alloys on alloys on their tie. They'd have barium, vanadium. I mean, basically, these are all components that are into metallurgy. Like that, that's what they are. It'd be like if you it'd be like if you came across a tie that had all the ingredients for for a cake. Okay, like you know, flour and eggs, and you know, and you had bits of cake on the tie. Well, you're gonna assume it's a baker's tie, right, or whatever, right. you know, or, or, or that the person who owned the tie was making a cake at some point. Yeah. Right. So we have all these elements that go into making alloys and metals. And, and again, 2000, no, 2800 pure titanium fragments. That is a lot. Okay. And again, let's, let's remember we only have this isn't the whole tie, people. You know, uh, Tom didn't cover the whole tie. We didn't get sticky stubs from the whole tie. It's not a lot. You know, so the whole tie is, you know, this is just part of the tie has 2,800 ty pure titanium particles on it. So, and people can say, you know, well, maybe the air, it got on the aircraft or whatever. I, I mean, I don't know. It's just, it's, does it, they it, say, doesn't make, it doesn't make, no, it doesn't make sense. sense. No, the, the, especially what Eric found with the three t titanium antimony particles. That's a complete link to metal, um, metal, metallurgy R and D, right? Specialty metals R and D. Um, there's so many already titanium particles on there. You look at it; it's 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 pretty freaking clear. I mean, they got they got a tie from a Boeing guy, and it didn't even have anything close. They didn't have nothing. Nothing was found. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and he was an engineer. They, you know, they got the tie from a Boeing engineer, and it didn't have anything on it, right? Much of anything. Whereas this is why. A guy who wore it in a laboratory, you literally mixing chemicals right with his own hands, probably probably touching his tie. You know, he might, you know, wipe, I mean, he may have wiped his hand on his tie to get, you know, some of these chemicals off. You know, you, you never know, right? And, and and he's standing over a forge, literally creating these little metal ingots, you know, out of his. He's inventing these things while he's wearing this tie, um, because that's what professional men in these labs did back then. Yeah. And I'll point and out too something. This yeah. so there's something interesting that Bill Mitchell, after we gave our presentation, uh, I think Bill Mitchell was impressed um, because basically the next day at breakfast he was like, "I really liked your presentation." He said, "It seems right." He like it just seems right for Cooper, from what I know, from what I saw of this man, it seems right. And what he meant was the vibe. This guy was a nerd, like he wasn't. Billy Badass. He was a a, a a nerd that he thought he could you know, rip out of his chair. An old nerd. And he said, "So what you're?" He said, "He said I like this avenue because he said, you know, I was I've been shown all the pictures of everybody, um, and I'll mention this too. I mean, uh, so there was a 302 that came out last month, where and this is really neat. 
So there was a 302 that came out last month where it was a whole set of 302s. And in them, we have um, – so what they used to do, for people who don't know, is they used to show photographs. Um, they would they, they would bring sets of like 10 or 20 photographs to – you know, every month or so, they would go see Bill. They would go see Florence. They, they'd catch Tina in an airport. And they'd show her, like, you know, whoever they were looking into at the moment. They would show photographs. And you see these 302s where they go, uh, that, that's not him, that's not him, that's not him, no, no, no. Well, we have, we have a 302 this time where Bill sees a photograph out of a lineup and says, he literally says in 302, you guys have shown me, like, 400 photographs. And this guy looks the most like Cooper I've ever seen. Okay. Now, the same set of photographs is shown to Florence Schaffner in an airport in Washington, D.C. And in, in literally her words are, I have seen hundreds of photographs you guys have shown me. This guy looks the most like Cooper. It's the same photograph. Okay. Now, who the person is, is um, a person. For the, so basically, a, a person is sort of photoshopped, primitively photoshopped. Cooper 20s and convinced Newsweek magazine to pay them $15,000 to come to an interview with them. So they were, they were hoaxers, essentially. And Newsweek magazine paid $15,000 to go do an interview with this fake Cooper. I tried they paid to get money. those guys on the show a while back, but... Are they still alive? Scammers. Scammers don't show up. Uh, wow. Yeah, there was th basically three people involved, and two of them were very young at the time. Yeah. Okay, well, the old one is probably me. dead. The old one's which, probably which, dead, which is, I yeah. think he was like a friend of a neighbor or something like that. Yeah, the old one who played Cooper. Okay, yeah. so the photograph that they showed, the, the photograph that Florence and Bill said looks just like Cooper is a photograph of this fake Cooper. He's wearing this goofy looking hat and he's got sunglasses on. But the thing that you notice first and foremost, when you look at this photograph, this dude looks old. I mean, he looks like he's in his 50s. He's mm -hmm. got like... Sort of, he's yeah, he has age-induced turkey neck. Sort of, his face is droopy with age, and he looks like Milton Verdile. Of course, he does, because every single sketch looks like Milton Verdile, including the picture that Florence and Bill say looks like the best at a hundred. Can't, like, can't deny him on any sketch. That's yeah. That's there's there's no sketch. There's no there's, photo picked out. That there's there's there's, there's no there's no there's no other suspect you can run through the gauntlet of all the sketches uh, better than Milton Verdile. If if it was yeah, just a complete, yeah. if it was a race to get through all the sketches and get through the finish line, Milton Verdal will will be there and jumping up and down. And he's the Michael Jordan, up. he's the Tom Brady of Cooper Sketch guy. I mean, and, and what's funny is it's not just Cooper Sketch. Like that's the whole point about this is that like you can have someone who looks just like who looks just like the sketch, right? Okay, but we have all the other stuff too, right? And so I mean, you throw all this together and you bake a pie. And we got a hell of a suspect here, and he is a unique toy individual. And you know what? If DB Cooper was a mad scientist, then that's kind of cool, you know. And that's totally unique, I think, too. Let me ask you guys this question because it's something I've been thinking about regarding Milton. Do you think he made a real bomb? Yes. Yes, I do. I think with his background in explosives, he could have. And uh, speaking of CooperCon, this is this is a plug. Eric will like this. Come to CooperCon because we had a live um, sleeping session on the on that's right. if the bomb is real. Yeah, we at Victor twenty at the Victor Twenty Three Brewery. Tom K and Nikki and myself and a few other people sat around. So Tom had never seen the actual description of the bomb from Tina's 
air traffic control statement we've got, right? Where she's talking air traffic control or whatever the statement is. It's the Typex or whatever that was that. What's it called? Where like the, I forget, but it's almost like Twitter back then. They had like, you know, it was, it was limited to a certain well, number Rolodex, of Rolodex, whatever, whatever it was. Yeah, I don't Rolodex. It's something type, called something. Some, I don't know some what it's tied. I don't know, whatever. Anyway, so he had, Tom had never seen that. And so Tom wants to look at it. And Tom goes, hmm. So road flares generally were big. They were longer. Okay, so Tina describes these dynamite, quote, dynamite sticks as being eight inches long. Okay, well, the road flares are usually bigger than that, actually. Um, and Tom's interested. Tom goes, hmm. So Tom starts Googling on his phone live Cooper sleuthing session. He's like, hmm, could this be real? Well, we found, we found dynamite that was red. Okay. That was eight inches long. We're like, Oh geez. Okay. And then we started looking at the wiring. It had a big D cell battery on it. Right. And you know, Tom knew exactly what Tina was describing. And he goes, would this have enough amplitude to set off a blasting cap on dynamite? And one of the guys who was there at CooperCon with us at the table He's friends with a Hollywood pyrotechnics master you know, in Hollywood. <laughs> so he gets, on, he gets on his phone and goes, how much amplitude do you need to bust a blasting cap on dynamite? Well, of course, this guy knows exactly. He goes, oh, you need this much. And so we, and we tell Tom, and Tom goes, ooh, this could have been – Tom goes, ooh, this could have been ugly. Because <laughs> it's like th th this could have worked. If this was dynamite, this, this battery had enough amplitude to, to set off the blasting cap. Um, and as I've told people before – Milton was a family man. He had children. He had a new grandchild at the time. If I do not think 58-year-old Milton Bordile was going to go to prison, okay? I just don't see it. That's not the way. He, what would he have done in prison, this guy who, who, who loved his freedom, who loved science? And what could he have done in prison? No, no, no. So the thing about blowing yourself up is, you know, you kill yourself, but you also blow your body up. So, you know, now we could identify somebody through DNA you know, if they blew themselves up. But back then, you blow yourself up. And again, let me point out to anybody, if Milton or whoever Cooper was going to blow themselves up, I think they would have done it only in a scenario where they were cornered by the FBI on the ground and Tina had already, Tina had, Tina had fled from the plane. Right. You know, some, something like that. I don't think he, I do not think Milton Bordeaux was a killer. I do not think he would ever would have done that to anybody. Well, That's not his personality. To, he didn't want to hurt anybody, but at the same yeah. time, at he was, he was not going to be taken alive. Yeah. At the same time, we have Tina saying it's not in the FBI files. And this is where I want to point out there's there are certain things that weren't in the FBI files that were actually expressed and it just didn't get into the files. One thing we know for sure is Tina saying that Cooper said he didn't want to be taken alive. That's not in the FBI 302s. You won't find that anywhere, but that's two times Tina has said that in her yep. testimony that uh, Cooper told her that she, he wouldn't be taken alive. It's in so, the Rolling Stone interview she did and in the HBO documentary and the HBO documentary. Yeah. So we have two instances and that's not in the three Oh twos. And right. we have Tina saying that he's saying he's not going to be taken alive. Now, so, if, so, so yeah, so yeah, if Cooper doesn't for. have, yeah, if Cooper doesn't have one, uh, any way to kill himself, how can he come? How can he make the claim? I won't be taken alive. Was he going to get in a fist fight with cop with the cops and they're, they're going to kill him? So that means he must have had some way to, to kill himself, either a pistol in his mystery bag or the bomb was real. And again, the bomb was only would have been real so that if he was going to be captured, he, he would never be identified and bring shame to his family. That's I, I, I've got I've got a child. 
you know, you're a, you're a father, Darren, you know, I would not want my dead faced photo on the freaking cover of New York times saying, help us identify the hijacker. And Which you is better why believe... you carry a briefcase bomb at all times in case you're cornered. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Exactly. So, I mean, it, you know, if, if, you know, and you, you can, I, you can rest assured in 1971, they would have put a post-mortem photo of a man's face on the, on the TV, on TV. Said, help us identify oh, yeah. this man. Absolutely. I mean, you know, absolutely. So yeah, I don't want my dead face being on there for my children to see. So a bomb serves that purpose. But, you know, again, it didn't need to be real. We all know this. We've all said it a million times. It didn't need to be real. He could have had a ham sandwich in there. He didn't even need to show Florence the bomb, and they would have still done it. You know what I'm saying? He could have had, like, the proverbial, like, you know, finger in his jacket. Stick him up, you know? I mean, he could have had a finger in his jacket look, you know, looking like a gun, and they would have you know, given him what he wanted, right? But, you know, someone as smart as Milton, I don't think he did anything half-assed his whole life, ever. I mean, this was a guy who made contact lenses for chip for his kids. I don't think this man would do, would do anything half-assed. So, I mean, we know that it could have worked. We know that the, that the amplitude was right on the bomb. Um, we know that it resembled dynamite, you know, and, you know, we, we have found red dynamite, you know, and even if it wasn't red dynamite, he, the man, the man probably could have painted them red just so the, so the girl would go, Oh yeah, that's dynamite. This so is, she would get the point. You know, I, I don't, you know, who knows, but yeah, the bomb, you know, like I said, I want to reiterate, I do not believe Milton Vardial was a psychopath. He was not a psychopath. He would not have killed innocent people. Um, but I do not think he would have gone to prison alive. I, I don't see that at all. What is the best evidence against Milton? Best evidence Ooh. against Milton? Um, well, you know, you can kind of speculate. Um, you want to say he's a little bit too short. Uh, we got that from Eric Ulis. Um, You want, which I, I don't think. But again, five, ten it, and a half barefoot is five, not ten and a half. I mean, we're we're That's, like we're good. We're we splitting got, hairs. We got, yeah, we're good. Dude, That's fine. Yeah, like I'm, I'm cool. Five, a, ten and a half. Six, like like honestly, if Bill Bill saying he wasn't intimidated by the guy. So like a six two. Six two plus guy, I think Bill might have uh, took a little bit more note. Like, hey man, this guy's kind of big. Like, yo, you know, Bill thought he could throw him out of his seat. He's not. He's not worried. If his heights wasn't daunting on him. Uh, you know, his physical imposure wasn't anything daunting, right? So if yeah. you you get you get an inch and a half uh, off on the height, that's that's not an issue with me. Um, you know, the the the, the main de gras on Milton Verdal is the history with the titanium antimony alloy. So but that's Eric the best. Thought, and that's good for him. I mean, we're talking about, you know, what's against Milton. So I, I would say that two things. Okay. Age, maybe. Okay. 58 years old is the oldest Cooper suspect I've ever heard of. But again, people who are athletic and fit will look younger. Okay. I, I could see, Milton Verdal looking 52 or 53 or whatever. I mean, again, Eric Ulis is 56 years old and looks 45. The people, especially when you're wearing sunglasses, so much of our age is in our eyes, right? When you're wearing sunglasses, I mean, especially slumped down in the back of a plane, you know, it, it's, it's hard to tell, I think, age. Yeah, so, And not just sunglasses, but wearing a all black with a skinny tie, it, gives a, slim, fit. it gives a slim appearance, especially from a distance. And again, it, 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 if we believe his hair was colored, and I do believe his hair was colored, 
Um, a lot of witnesses, something was off-putting about his hair. And I do believe that when men died, there, there was no Grecian formula back then. There wasn't just for men. They used literally like shoe polish and crap. I mean, literally like it was disgusting what men did to color their hair back then. And, it, and, and his hair has been described as – his D.B. Cooper's hair has been described as awful. It has been described as greasy. Um, it stained is one like person, shoe polish. Marcelled. Marcelled, yeah. stained uh, Richard Nixon hair, which is not flattering yeah. at all. Somebody said. Uh, somebody said he, I mean, he, he had greasy hair, like a gangster movie. I mean, it was something was bizarre and uh, it seemed like black, his hair was that na- was natural. His hair was not natural. I think that can be established. Yeah, something was off about his hair. But the other thing that I would say is why. The other big hit on Milton, I would say, is I, I cannot explain why he would do this. I mean, that's uh, you know, he wasn't poor. I, I mean, he wasn't wealthy, but he wasn't poor. And thing is, it's hard to tell with people back then, right? I mean, think about your grandparents, right? I mean, I, I, I would not have known if my grandparents were rich or not. You know, I mean, a lot, a lot of old people from that era had a lot of money, and they didn't show matter. it at all. They lived, they lived in tiny houses, and when they died, they had millions of dollars in the bank. I mean, you know, just, you just wouldn't know about it. You know, older older people. That, so it is tough to tell with that generation. Yeah. Like my grandfather so, worked for public utilities. And has a 200 acre farm. Yeah. And like, how do you know where'd that money come from? It's, it's, it's hard to say exactly. Perfect. Perfect example. The knock on Vordial would be maybe a little old, but, but again, we've got Bill Mitchell saying the guy was older than the sketches. We have Flo saying he was in his fifties. We've got them. We have Flo and Bill picking out a photograph of a man who was clearly in his fifties. This is not a 40 year old man in this picture they picked out. Okay. But then you say motive. Why would someone who is this old do this? I mean, why would someone who is this established do this? Um, I don't know. I mean, again, well, I, I can talk a little bit about that. You know, I, I think Milton, uh, he invested in what he believed in. Um, we know he invested in the 80s in Sastop, which was a nuclear uh, react, uh, a nuclear reactor plant that actually didn't end up getting off the ground. Um, it, um, there were, it was actually used in, um, in transformers. I think transformers one, um, it's out there in the middle of Washington, in the middle of nowhere. It's called sat, uh, I think, I believe SAS stop. It's a, it was a nuclear reactor plant that Milton was invo- uh, invested in, in the eighties. Um, it didn't end up making, it didn't end up uh, getting off the ground. And now it's just like a place to use for, to film movies and some stuff like that. It's still a cool place. People visit it, whatever. Um, you know, it's nuclear power, which two things, the two things that Milton was involved in throughout his life was nuclear, was nuclear power and an electrical and nuclear um, and um, hydroelectric, hydroelectric energy. So hydro um, nuclear, nu- nuclear energy and hydroelectric energy. Um, that was the two things Milton was, was, was deep knee high into. Um, so we have SAS up that he was, uh, that he was an investor in. So it was a failed investment. It was a failed investment, yeah. but maybe he, like when he, we think maybe Ryan thinks that, um, we had, he had 20 years with REM crew and then he ended up, um, go, so he left, he left, uh, REM crew Pittsburgh area in 1965, right around that, right around that time period. Then he goes to Nevada and he works for Timet. We know he works for Timet because we have a badge that has his name, face, and everything on, on Timet, right? 
And then we have, I don't know, we don't know when he exactly he leaves time it, but on that badge that he has on time it actually says SA, which I've just recently been told today uh, by my boy Yanks that SA means salary, mean the salaried employee. So at one time he was actually salaried by time it. Time it ends up going downhill in 1971 because the SST. Obviously, they, as Ryan has uh, posted stuff on the group, that they ended up firing, um, I don't know how many exactly employees, Ryan, on the- All of them, uh, four, all of them, 450. 450, they shut, they shut down the, they shut down the plant. So Milton didn't have anywhere to go at that point to, I don't know, at, at, we have them in 69, 69 still doing batches of contact lenses for his kids. So- I don't know if he still needed a place to do contact lenses or he was still doing stuff. Definitely he was still in the game, obviously. Maybe retired at that point, getting a pension. We don't know exactly. But his main lab that he was working with got shut down. They fired this guy named Don Cooper, fired all these guys. And um, every, the the whole, you know, the whole the whole side of metals on on that side of the outside side of the country was completely in turmoil. Um, so Milton was, you know, pretty much like, what the fuck, what am I going to do? My lab shut down. Um, if he had, so his, his employer time, it had a, uh, had a, had a, uh, had a bank. So it, it had a, um, um, what would we, what'd we call it? Uh, its own credit union kind of thing. Credit. There yeah. you go. Yeah, it's credit union. So, Milton, we don't know if he put his money in right away, but he would have he would have probably been in with them starting sixty seven at least. Um, we don't know sixty five, sixty five actually. Yeah, I'm I'm saying maybe yeah. at the latest. I don't know exactly the transition, yeah. but let's say sixty five, sixty seven, mid sixties. He probably would have already had his money with Time It. We got a badge with them with Time It. They went. Their whole banking system went to kaput. They were like, "Oh, if you have if you have more than twenty thousand dollars, we're not gonna we're not gonna satisfy you. And even if you have that, if whatever money you have in there right now, we're freezing your your money." Yeah. So, so basically, their, yeah, yeah. Basically, the, the money that was in the credit union was liquidated um, when the when the when the factory shut down, and they said, "Look, anybody who has any four hundred one k or whatever it is can only." You you can you can't withdraw more than twenty thousand dollars, period. Um, so I mean, if you had a lot of money in there and you were wanting to get the money out of it, then you're you're just screwed. So here we have, you know, I tell you, if, if it wasn't Milton Verdile, um, people should be looking at Time Ed employees, because this is really on the nose with Titanium, with Don Cooper, with all of my money tied up, my retirement money that I can't get out. You know, because they've frozen, they have frozen the account. Um, so, you know, a lot, lot going on in '71 um, that would, you know, make somebody have a grudge. But yeah, I would say age and motive are the two things that are most that are problems. Everything else makes sense. I mean, we can explain everything really. I mean, now again, people can say no parachute experience. Um, we don't know that. You know, we don't know if he did or didn't, but again, that's not dispositive about DB Cooper. We don't, we don't, we don't know his level of expertise on skydiving. We just don't. Um, the FBI says says he was a a wuffo, as Bruce says. You know, um, and I think that was crazy. But then you see the other, I mean, you know, uh, the guy who thought of this thing to begin with, uh, Paul Cini, 
had never jumped out of a plane before and he, and he was about to do it. So, um, and I'll point out too that, um, so Milton's, so Milton's daily paper was the Spokane Chronicle and I'll put it on Norjack.org. Um, the Paul Sini headline when Paul Sini a few weeks earlier was the first person to try to hijack a plane and jump out of it. That headline for the Spokane Chronicle, the headline that Milton Verdal would have seen is so striking. It, it has these like, it's, it's got a photograph of Paul Sini with Paul Sini with his head split open, laying in a bed, bleeding. And then the next photo next to it on, on the headline is these passengers like with these maniacal faces where they're laughing. It's this, this whole bunch of passengers and they're all like, ha ha. They're all like laughing. And then that, right next to Paul Sini's busted up head laying in a bed, you know, it says, you know, skyjacking failed or whatever. Right. So it's a very arresting headline um, that probably would have got Milton's attention for sure. Um, and if he was thinking of doing something like this, well, then that's a beautiful headline, and it was a good, a very arresting headline for him to see. Yeah, and I don't think there's any doubt that Milton was uh, looking at uh, skyjacking headlines because they were all politically driven. Um, Milton was a political uh, um, animal, fanatic. really. Yeah. Animal politics was like his game. Um, you know, that's one of that was one of his passions. He was the mayor of his small town in Pateros. I know it wasn't big time politics, but. It was still a little bit that you know he felt he like wasn't. He, I'll point out he wasn't. He was never elected mayor. Um, apparently the mayor quit, so he was an alderman or a councilman basically. And like I said, he had these amazing election results. You know, we have a uh, we have election results where Milton Bordile. It's like Milton Bordile. Uh, you know, Ward One Alderman, one hundred and seventy five votes. Joe Blow one vote. So like his his challenger got one vote, which was probably the challenger himself. If there had been two, it would have been Challenger and his wife. So maybe the Challenger's wife even voted for Milton. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. it's, and I've spoke to his grandson, so a, a few of his life lessons. I don't want to, you know, really divulge too much, but a few of the life lessons that he said that he gave to him was um, golf, politics, and uh, marry a Japanese woman. Uh, that, was, <laughs> that, that was kind of the three things that he said. This was these, these are your uh, these are your guidelines in life and. Um, you know, that was that that's what he was into. You know, the politics portion, it it makes sense that he would be following skyjackings because that's what it, it was all politically driven. Um, yeah. and you know, I wouldn't be surprised if what Milton did was also politically driven, just that we couldn't understand. He was the first one to make a political statement, I guess, with money, but you think that he would want to do it for the money and all of that. Maybe that was. Maybe that was part of the thing, but it ended up. I don't think it ended up being part of the part of the the equation at the end of the day. But at the end of the day, I think politics had to do with with it. I think there was a statement there that that was being made, and um, I think even if it, even if the statement was in his own mind, yeah, if it was in he his was own still mind, doing it. Right, he wasn't doing it for money because then then if it was, then the money would be spent right immediately afterwards. And then we would have had a bill. We well, would have had a bill. Yeah, I, and I want to say something too before you know, we, 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 before we wrap up, that you know, I feel we feel really blessed um, as a team, me and Nikki and Chris Brewer working on this. This is like, it has come very easy, and like you know, it's come so easy to us. And what I mean by that is that, you know, oftentimes with, with when you're investigating Cooper, 
you know, it's difficult to get answers on things and it's difficult to find, to make connections. Every single thing has fallen into place. Like just so easily. I mean, look, we even found video footage, color video footage of Milton Bordeaux drinking an, a cocktail and going, and that's nice. We, I mean, so like, and that'll be on the website too. I mean, we have actual video footage of Milton Bordeaux, like in the flesh before the hijacking. Now it's 20 years before the hijacking. He's younger, but still, the only other Cooper suspect I know of that has any film footage of them before the hijacking is uh, there's a brief clip of Melvin Wilson, you know, um, but, but before he was vanished, you know, um, there's some like a few seconds of footage of Melvin Wilson, but that's it. So not only did we have a family who is being so generous with us and gracious with us in, 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 in this goofy hobby we have, they're not, they're not slamming the door in our faces. They're giving us their time. They're assisting us, which is a blessing. But we have color footage of the guy. You know, we have pictures where he looks like every single sketch. We can make a, I mean, a collage. I mean, um, we have a unique name. Like, I almost want to cry for, for Dave that his Cooper suspect is named Bill Smith. Like, my, my grandfather's name is Bill Smith, literally. My <laughs> grandfather's name is William Smith. So it's like, you know, like, my God try to find William Smith things on the internet. It, good luck. Milton Vordile, he's the only human ever named Milton Vordile. I mean, li literally, okay, that I know of. So it is not hard to find Milton Vordile things online. Now, he was, as we've said, we could not find photographs of him for like a month and a half because he was, he was Milton Vordile is Mr. Not appearing in this photo guy in his yearbooks. Like, Every yearbook of his, we can try to find. It's like not appearing, not you know, not pictured. Milton Vordal, like no, you know, we're, we keep going through these yearbooks, like oh god, please have a picture of Milton, not 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 pictured in in, in you know, junior class photo. Milton Vordal, no. So he didn't like having his picture taken apparently, he, but he didn't mind being videoed in color one time, uh, drinking drinking cocktails and and hanging out with his uh, Manhattan Project reunion dude. It's a it's like a Manhattan Project reunion dinner thing. Um, but so, yeah, we're just blessed. Everything, everything has worked out good. I've got great guys, you know, Nikki and Chris, we formed such a great relationship. All of us are good at unique things. We all bring gifts to the table and, and, and working with a team is the way to do it. Way, the way to do it. You could never do this alone um, because I might've had a stupid idea that I wanted to throw out to the vortex or something. And Nikki or Chris would say, oh, that's stupid. I don't do that. And this is why, or Nikki would have had something that he might've impulsively said or done that we would, that we, there's people there to check you checks and balances. It's great for a team. And like I said, the video footage, clear example, we have this amazing video footage that shows his true skin color. We've got Nikki, Nikki found the website, it was archive website. Okay. Then Chris Brower finds the video. And then I spot Milton in the video. So it's like, you know, all three of us found this clip together. We're bringing something to it. And that is exactly how it should be. And um, we're just so fortunate to have such a cool suspect who's not a bad guy. You know, I would not want D.B. Cooper to be a bad guy, a villain. Uh, Milton Vordial is not a villain. He's not a bad guy. He's a unique guy. Um, and everything seems to, you know, we used to say, that and Eric says it all the time. That's true. When when you find the real DB Cooper, things are just going to steamroll into place, 
And that is how I have felt. Everything, I mean, there's no silver bullets for him. Everything checks out. Boom, 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 boom. And he, and he looks and he looks just like him too. You know, so it's it's just been it's been a wonderful experience. Um, meeting meeting my team. I went out to CooperCon and I met my team and I met Bill Mitchell, who says, you know, he looks like him. And then Bill Mitchell says, you know, Bill Mitchell gives me his email and it's like, you know, send me some stuff on Verdial. I'm like, okay, I mean, that's cool. You know, I mean, so, and for Bill to say, this guy kind of gives me the vibe of what I remember Cooper being. And we're like, oh, that's cool. You know, and, which and he hasn't just, done with other suspects in the past. No, he has not. Absolutely. And, and that's something that is striking about Bill is he's saying this guy kind of, this is the first suspect that kind of, you know, gives me that feeling that maybe it could be him, you know. And then, you know, um, the old crew, you know, Tom, Tom, you know, Tom is always the grown up in the room, you know, um, Tom is everybody. Tom's the guy who goes now children, calm down, you know, but Tom is highly intrigued by, by Milton. I mean, highly intrigued. Um, Mark Meltzer is intrigued by Milton. I mean, everybody in the vortex who is open minded about Milton goes, okay, I could see it. Um, you know, we've not gotten any harsh push pushback. I mean, Flyjack, I guess, on Drop Zone, but that's that that's who he is. He, he I mean, it could be the actual DB Cooper on the forum arguing with Flyjack, and Flyjack would say, "You're not DB Cooper." You know, I mean, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, yeah. So, I mean, that that's expected. You know, I res- I respect Flyjack. You know, I really do. But we we don't get along too well. But you know, but no, the the, the, the everyone's been very gracious about Verdal, which was surprising. I thought maybe Verdal would be people would hate on him or whatever, but not really. He's been pretty well accepted. Let me ask this. You guys find in his attic a parachute, a ticket stub, and a stack of 20s. The case is solved. Mm-hmm. What happens to the Vortex then? Uh, I think uh, we, we, go to, uh, we go to the Ariel store. Uh, we get a bunch of kegs, and we fucking... Uh, <laughs> We we party and we sell we celebrate, man. We uh, uh, I don't know. I guess City, man, I don't. I don't. I know what would happen. It would become the Tina Bar Mystery Group. Is what it would become. <laughs> <laughs> because we that. still won't have the answer to that. We still won't. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that one. It would become, Eric would have to rename it the Tina Bar Mystery Group. All right, let me ask you guys this question, because I've been accused of this a lot lately. And it drives me crazy. Do you think the vast majority of people in the vortex want this case to remain unsolved? No, absolutely not. I think we're a testament of it. We've been working night and day for days. Um, we're working this rem crew lead like, <laughs> like you no, wouldn't but, believe. No, the people. No, the people. No, absolutely not. The p- people want this solved. I mean, you know, Mark Meltzer. You know, you know, call. You know, I had I've had great conversations with him on the phone recently. You know, he he wants it solved. He's like, please, someone find this guy. No, I mean, we want to know the answer. I mean, if it, it's almost like it's a stupid, it's a stupid suggestion. Honestly, it's asinine. It's like saying people who people who study Bigfoot, or oh, we don't actually want to find Bigfoot. Bull crap. That's, that's, that's no way. If you if you were like if you're on the Bigfoot Facebook group. I mean, of course you want to find Bigfoot. We want to find D.B. Cooper. So that's so ridiculous. I don't know why anybody would suggest that. And I have heard that before. 
for, for a reason. Where, you know, the only people the only people you can accuse that of is people that are making trying to make money off it, which is all all on Tom Colbert and you know a couple other grifters. But you know they don't they haven't made any money off it. So you know there's no money to be made in DB Cooper. Even if we end up solving it, we're not. You know we're we're. We're historians, man. We're historians. We're not. Yeah, we're, we're doing not- this for the love of it. And, and yeah. let me defend Eric here. There are some people who accuse Eric of like, you know, being unscrupulous or something with press conferences to try to no. make money off CooperCon. Eric loses money on CooperCon. Okay, he does it. I mean, he literally loses money doing this for us. So we appreciate Eric. Um, so any people who attack him don't know him either. Like they don't know his him personally. And I've gotten to know Eric personally recently, and Eric's a friend, and I don't like, you know, those attacks on him because he's. It, this is a passion project for him, and I would not. I would not have met. I would not be. There would be no Milton Verdile if it wasn't for Eric Ulis. There'd be no Facebook group if it wasn't for Eric Ulis. I would not be talking to you, Darren. If it there would not be an environment. I would have never met. I would never met Ryan because you know what, Eric, when starting his group. I think he he started a more inviting place for people to come on in the case where yep, before yep. when you were on the drop zone where you're on the DB Cooper forum, you didn't want to necessarily poke on and then have to deal with Georgia and Flyjack and, you know, all these guys that are just going to rip down your throats. You had a more inviting, you know, you had a more inviting atmosphere. And that's I think that's where when Eric started this group and, you know, we kind of cultivated that environment i think that's where things have changed where people actually working together using their minds using their smarts to you know to really get down in the nitty-gritty on this stuff where before when it was on the forums it was just complete like oh i'm battling against this guy uh you know i'm I'm gonna argue the flight path with this guy i'm gonna argue this thing with this guy it was just more of a it was just more of a freaking more of a debate where when we got on the when we got on the Facebook group, it started becoming more of a collaborative effort. I think where exchange. I, it was more of an ex, an open exchange of ideas. Yeah, open exchange of information. I thought I felt that people could be more open to come on there, and then that's where I got guys working with me. I got Chris Brewery messaged me, and then I I saw, and then Ryan ended up started poke started typing around where before when he was like he spent years just lurking on the TV Cooper forum and on the A drop decade. Zone. <laughs> decade where he's never said anything and if he did say anything then he'd be on my radar i've already been talking to him but then i was like whoa like who is this who is this guy all of a sudden just popping up here and he knows some he's so well researched about the case i'm just like man i'm like the, the drop zone and the and the db cooper forum you know it, it it did its due diligence like it you know it educated people and I, I realized that there was actually people that got educated and then even actually you know, wanted to participate because it was just so nasty on there. And then we ended up getting a better atmosphere. And then Ryan comes in and then we're like, oh, shit. Look, we're bringing in people that actually know the case, know that what's up. And, you know, I was just completely like, yo, man, like this is this is great. Yeah. And it's like there's that accusation of there's all this money in it. And <laughs> I've talked to a lot of people that seriously investigate D.B. Cooper uh, I'm very familiar with almost everyone in the Vortex. Uh, and I can tell you that almost everyone has spent a lot more money than they've made. Even, I mean, probably the only author who made made money on this is probably Jeffrey Gray. And that's, 
that's a decade old book when publishing was a little bit different. You know, he was already a celebrated writer before that book came out. So he had this deal in advance to be able to fund that. Yeah. You know, I don't think, you know, Drew Beeson and Marty Andrade, they're not, they're not cashing massive checks for their books every month. No, they're both amazing books. I highly recommend both of them. But they both have day jobs, you know, and I bet both of them, like myself, would say I've spent a lot more money on D.B. Cooper than I've made. Oh, my God. Like all all the time I spend it. We're talking me. We're talking about five years of, you know, I I don't count all hours, but, you know, we're we're talking about a lot of time invested in, you know, I don't I don't care about any any financial compensation man i i just want to know the truth man i just you know i can't uh you know when i wake up in the morning it's it's still bothering me you know so i just want to know so i can just uh be at peace i'd i'd have to get like a six figure check to make more than minimum wage on the amount of time <laughs> i'd i've spent on this yeah oh yeah i mean i could have i mean the number of clients i could have gotten Instead, I sit. Instead, I sit at my office, messing around, looking up, you know, archive. I, I spend my time looking up Metal Progress magazine articles <laughs> from 19, 1957, and I, and I hate metallurgy. I don't give a damn about it. You know, I'm like, what a bunch of nerds. You know, but I'm sitting there, sitting there I, like, like these guys are dorks, man. These people who are metallurgists and Vince Peterson and and, and uh, Lord Dial. I mean, what a bunch of nerds. But I'm a nerd too. So like I can appreciate, I want, if DB Cooper turns out to be a dork, hell yeah. Um, Cause you know, I'm not a badass. I'm not a commander. I'm not jumping into Vietnam, but you know what? I can, I can like, I can be into astronomy and things like Milton Bordal was, you know, I mean, I, I'm it's almost like if it's almost like DB Cooper is one of us in a way, if, if he turned out to be a mad scientist like Milton Bordal, yeah. um, you know, and when we say mad scientist, we mean it in the most endearing way possible, like Doc Brown and Back to the Future. I mean, like Milton. Milton seems like that. I mean, we you know we don't know. We never met Milton. We we will never know Milton because he passed away in 2002. But he seems to me like almost like Doc Brown in Back to the Future. Like this, 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 this. You know, or like oh, uh, was it you know Rick from Rick and Morty or something? Like he's just like this, this amazing brain you know, who could do anything. And you know what? If skyjacking is on the menu that day, then he can, he can do that too. That's what I think. Not an issue. Not an issue for Milton at all. He wanted to do it. That was his midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is a heck of a midlife crisis. Yeah. But if someone uh, has some information that might help you guys, or if they want to tell you both that you're total idiots, uh, is there somewhere they can find you guys? Yeah, hit them, hit them up, Ryan. Just uh, I don't know I if you just, have a website, but we well, just kinda... no, I mean, just hit us up on the Facebook group. Just join the Facebook group. All you have to do, join the Facebook group. We post every day. I mean, you can see and that's me and the DB Cooper Mystery Group. That's right. Uh, or you can go to Drop Zone and you can see uh, a man named Flyjack call me a goober idiot all day long. Um, so you can do that too. I love you, Fly. Miss you. But yeah, you can do that. And uh, Facebook group is probably, I mean, Facebook group is really where to find us. I mean, if, if, if you're not on a Facebook group, you're missing out. Yep. It is 
an incredible resource. Um, and there are some incredible people on there who are so smart. Um, and it, it is, I am in awe of the intelligence of some of the people on there. Um, and, and it's, it's a, it's a nice place. I mean, again, you can, you can throw out some weird theories on there and no one's going to dog cuss you. I mean, about it, you know, and I mean, you know, you might get told, Hey, look, that he didn't hide on the plane. I mean, that comes <laughs> up at least, it does come up at least once a week, you know, um, you know, that, that, you know, that he hit on the plane or he didn't jump or, or he didn't exist. Didn't exist. Yeah. It was Bill Radicek. <laughs> okay, sure. But yeah, find us on Facebook group. Yeah, jump, jump on, uh, you know, talk with us. Um, like I said, uh, we, uh, Ryan just launched uh Nordjack.org. If you yep. want, if we got, we go in, uh, we go into some pretty good detail there on Milton. Um, we talked about a lot of stuff here today. There's still a lot of stuff we still haven't even covered on Milton. Um, we just kind of scratched the surface. Yeah, definitely uh, but, check out the website, especially because it's got yeah. pictures, which that's what people want to see, especially yeah. listening to this that has no no video component or anything like that. Exactly, man. You can see some pictures, some some different stuff that's, you know, some visual stuff like in Milton. And, you know, I, I think it kind of speaks for itself, man. I You know, I've been since Tom K kind of put out with his elemental analysis, um, you know, I. I've been digging real deep, real hard, and I've looked guys from from RMI, from Wuch Wa Chang, from Crucible Steel, from um from every type of uh, titanium metals, specialty metals, R and D, and I haven't found anybody that fits fits the bill like Milton Bernard Verdal. I mean, he's he's the unicorn, uh, and I've looked at pretty much anyone from any company with any kind of a status that they'd be wearing a tie and <laughs> Milton sticks out like a force sore thumb and everybody else just kind of, you know, falls to the wayside. I mean, believe me, man, I, I'm, you know, you know, Darren, I I've been on here. Uh, I've been on here since, you know, since your old school episode, since episode uh, eight and nine, where I said it was uh, James Edward Klansnick. And I can say today and I can, uh, you know, officially say to the family and everybody else that, you know, I was wrong and James Edward Klanzik wasn't D.B. Cooper. And I can say that, you know, confidently because I know who D.B. Cooper that who D.B. Cooper is. And that's Bill and Bernard Verdal. And, you know, uh, we're going to continue to work the lead and we're going to I think at the end of the day, we'll we'll have a definitive kind of stamp on it. But at the end of the day, if we don't. I'm satisfied. I don't have any interest in looking at anybody else because I looked in, I've looked into everybody else and that's where I'm going to kind of leave it. And also mad props to you for being one of the very few people who had a suspect and then moved on from that. Yeah. Because I've seen so many people face overwhelming information that their suspect is not Cooper and then stand by it anyway. Yeah. So, at, at the end of the day, as, as I learn more in the tie particles and everything like that, if, if, if the tie don't fit, it must have quit. And that's how uh, that's how <laughs> I ended up elim eliminating plans, Nick, and we got some over it all. Somebody said on the Facebook group, if the lip don't fit, you must have quit. That's also, <laughs> one, that's also a big one, man. So yeah, go to norjack.org and you can see Milton's lip. All right, guys. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. I am stoked about Milton and I'm sure everyone else is as well so thank you darren thank you guys darren, gracious as usual brother you're the man 
Go see their work for yourself at norjack.org, N-O-R-J-A-K.org. And if you want to tell them they're on to something here or tell them that they're crazy, you can find these guys on the D.B. Cooper Mystery Group on Facebook, The Drop Zone, or the D.B. Cooper Forum. We'll have links to it all in the show notes for you. Did you play tennis with D.B. Cooper? Did you find a skeleton clutching an attache case in the woods? Are you tired of us getting it wrong? Hit us up. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or email us dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Ryan Burns and Nikki Broughton for keeping me in the loop during their investigation. Thank you to Russell Colbert for keeping me in the loop during his insurrection. Thank you to Darian Osadich for letting us play his music. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex. Jacked the plane, so we were told Then he jumped into the cold As a burn and a cigarette In the air, the stage is set Polite and kind, the people say It's time to make his getaway This is how the story goes About the money and the man D.B. Cooper, they call me now Catch me if you can Roll up in his cold-built tight He's got enough to change his life Where he landed, no one knows But from his tale, a legend grows Was a cold, dark, rainy night As he walked, he saw light Held his cash close to his side just needs to catch a ride This is how the story goes About the money and the man D.B. Cooper, they call me now Catch me if you can They call me now, 